Hello everyone, welcome to episode 29 of the Avocado Gamescast, the Avocado's very own super duper one-of-a-kind gaming podcast. We have a very special podcast lined up for you today, because our main topic of discussion isn't video games. I know, right? Right? Um, instead of talking about video games themselves, we're going to talk about the depiction of video games in other media, like books, movies, and television, that kind of stuff. But before we get to that, let's do introductions. My name's Merv, and joining me, we have Waluigi's number one fan, Wolfman Jew. Wah. Wah, indeed. <laughs> Next, we have New York's most famous autumnal confection, Sewer Rat Pumpkin Pie. Are we doing puns today? Because I could be your new favorite fall guy. That would be great. I, <laughs> I didn't think of that. And finally, the man who thinks the bungee jump is something you do in Destiny, the Kappa. Hey, what's up, guys? Oh, you're going to hear some Destiny stuff today, too. Better be ready. Yeah, it's going to be... Um, at some point, we're going to do like a Destiny podcast, too. I can't which wait. It's going to be uh, weird, because I have never played a second of Destiny, and I've seen all of like five minutes of gameplay. So it'll be kind of like learning a new language. <laughs> I mean, at least I've seen be... more gameplay. I mean, it won't be... That different from when you, I, Operetta, and Lord Stoneheart did the all Pokemon Sun and Moon podcast. Yeah, I mean, I've actually played like I'd say ten <laughs> hours of Pokemon Blue, and I've played and I've you know watched the the anime, so I'm at least familiar with the property. I know jack shit about Destiny. Other than that, I had a Dinklebot for a while. Yes, that's ninety <laughs> percent of what I know. Other than raids. Grades. Yeah, and apparently there's something called a light level. I don't know. I'll look it up. I'll I'll, I'll give myself a big primer on destiny. Um, so Kappa, I hear it's your birthday today. It is. It Happy is. Happy birthday. Thanks. Or should I say, Cappy birthday? Get it? Oh, oh Kappa. grown. And, and, and speaking of Cappy, let's talk about Super Mario Odyssey. I. I feel like we're probably going to go into this as a bit of more of an ar- of a maybe an argument than normal because I know you've been having some issues with it while I it it might be my favorite game of the year. Yeah, I I actually just finished it last night. By the way, I, by the way, I think I just did an amazing segue. I think it deserves to be acknowledged. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, as far as Super Mario Odyssey goes, yeah, I finished it last night. Um I overall it's a game that I liked. I think I had some issues with the controls and I don't know if it's nearly as inventive as something like Super Mario 64, but I, I enjoyed my time with it and I think it's a good game. It'll probably there's a good chance for a top ten for the year. Um and you know, if you you're in the market for a switch, I'd recommend it. Um I haven't really gotten much into the endgame content, though. I've only, like, I just beat it and then tooled around for an hour. So I, I don't really know much about the surprise that come afterwards. Uh, so we're going to try to keep the spoiler light. Yeah, to be honest, most of the big surprises, I think, are in the climax and in the secret bonus level after the credits. Yeah, so I've just um. I've just found that secret bonus level, and... Uh, I finally figured out what the big gray cubes are for. So, um, 
this conversation will actually not mean that much more in context, by the way. Yeah, so we're, we're kind of talking around uh, structure of the game. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, it's very much like Super Mario 64 with the big open levels. Except for in this time, uh, instead of really ping-ponging back and forth between levels as you would in Super Mario 64, uh, you pretty much complete you know, uh, like a main quest line in each level uh, in yeah. sequence. And then you can go back to levels later and gather more yeah. stars, or in this case, they're called moons. Power moons. Although it's also, yeah, what's weird is it's both more and less linear than some of the other 3D Mario games, Other, not counting uh, Super Mario 3D Land and World, which were by far the most linear 3D Mario games. Uh, because... Every time you go to a world, there's like a main quest line, but almost all of them can kind of just be ignored because you can, as long as you get the proper amount of moons, almost all of the bosses you can, I think, ignore, actually. I think I, I think there's one kingdom where I didn't do the main quest line just by accident, but otherwise yeah. I, I generally followed it pretty closely uh, just because I felt it was like the intended experience and you know, for the most part, I think that intended experience was the right tack to take. So, I they the way they've structured it, I think, makes sense for the kind of game they were they're trying to make. Um, it did result in a few levels where I think they directed they directed the player a little too much. Like there's some there's some levels where like, you can't unlock the rest until you've done something on on the critical path. Um, for example, I don't consider this a spoiler because very on the Sand Kingdom, it's very hard to to get around unless you, you do the critical path, and that's really what you're you're intended to do. Yeah, although it's also worth noting again, you can do part of it and not uh, because you can. I forget. Um, I'm not sure when. Basically, it's a king. It's a desert kingdom. It's frozen over. You beat one of the bosses, and that sort of stops the stops it from being frozen over i i'm not sure which boss actually stops that yeah i think it's actually if i remember correctly i think it's actually the the last boss because there are a lot of bosses in that level um and there are a lot of bosses that you sort of fight over and over again but they get different variations on their uh on their attacks each time which i know some people found repetitive but I actually found it kind of neat it felt like it felt like I was going through like levels of like a video game within the video game. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought it was like training you for facing the high level bosses and it, yeah, go ahead. Oh yeah. That's one of the things I really like about it. And, um, is that it is very much a game that is open as it is. And even as much of it has like the big critical path, it actually has a lot of interesting designs that sort of, indirectly teach you about the game so um like you in one of the big standout levels is new donk city this kind of giant metropolis that's essentially like a manhattan style of area you go through there you have certain girders but then you learn about how there are these power lines in the city and earlier in the game you've used power lines to um, to sort of zip around levels. And so you start to have to use them to get to certain areas, and then you can realize how you can use them to quickly get up to the tops of buildings. And then from that, you can string together jumps to go over the buildings. And so it 
like it sends you on paths through what are essentially sandbox areas, but that they've sort of subtly cordoned off almost into kind of levels that snake around each other, if that makes sense. Yeah, they what they've done very well is, and this is something I think we're complaining about ukulele on the podcast a while back, something ukulele doesn't do very well, where it doesn't draw your attention to landmarks within the level. Um, and it doesn't sort of direct you where to go. Whereas here, the levels are very, are very open. You can go off the beaten path, but it's where the, the level design and architecture draws your visual attention is generally where you need to go. And, and the level, the one or two levels in this game that don't, I think are the weaker levels. Um, there's one level, There's, I think it's not a huge spoiler to say it. there's a snow-themed level, and yep. it suffers from what I like to call ukulele kind of level design. Um, and it doesn't work as well as some of the other levels that um, are, I shouldn't say more linear, but are better able at drawing you down a specific path. Snow Kingdom is definitely the weakest of the levels, and I say that as someone who loves snow levels. Um... I'm yeah, sorry. Who's I typing? Mean, yeah, who's typing? Yeah, sorry I mean it that. had it had um yeah it had its uh what you call it it had like the really fun parts that sort of take place underground, but the above ground stuff is all really is all really weak to me. It's yeah. Um. So yeah, overall, I think it's a game uh, I've enjoyed. Uh, I like to I like to say that it's that. It, it accidentally ended up being a lot like Nier Automata, and I've been calling it Super Mario Automata as a joke uh, because it has what it has in common. It has the same sort of capture mechanic as yes. Nier Automata does. Uh, it also takes place in a large open space, um, and there's also a huge amount of end game content, like there is in Nier Automata. The game doesn't really end once the credits roll. Yeah. So it's it, it's interesting that these two games have like you know, have the, all all these lines of similarity that you wouldn't expect, and that's one of the things I really love about both games is that like I think you can get to the end of both of their stories very easily, and that's really satisfying. But it's once you start to like pour over a lot of the crazy stuff at the end, it becomes really exciting. Um, last week or two weeks ago, I did the. Um, the very secret final level, which at the end of um, the more recent 3D Mario's, there's one secret super final level right at the end. And Super Mario Galaxy 2, it's uh, Grandmaster Galaxy. And in 3D World, it's Champion's Road. In Odyssey, it's called Long Journey's End. And all three are kind of like, gauntlets that are also collages of the game where you have to master all sorts of different specific mechanics and jump systems and environmental types and uh, tricks and dangers and the um and you have to go through the whole thing in one go and it's this incredibly exciting incredibly difficult but really satisfying fun challenge because you're going through this um like it's kind of like you're going through a celebration of the game itself. Yeah. Um, and without spoiling anything, there's segments within sort of the main 
questline proper that also sort of serve that function. Uh, without spoiling anything too heavily, there's one that's 2D and one that's 3D that sort of use all the mechanics from elsewhere in the game and, and remix them into these two sort of gauntlet-type segments, um, which I think was really effective. Yeah, that's one of the things. And I know because I, obviously I haven't been on the Gamescast um, this year except for last time. And I, and so, but I think one of the things we keep kind of coming back to and at the risk of having Merv and I just be the ones talking about this, uh, Pumpkin Pie and Kappa, please uh, chime in here, is that like a lot of what makes this such an interesting year for video games is how many games are really expressive and really interested in expressing these mechanics and these and their ideas. And so every game has this like, has all of these sections that really feel almost holistic, like every part of them kind of works together. And it, do you know what I mean? Or am I just... Yeah, I mean, I would say there are two big trends I've noticed in video games this year. It's that um, like the best video games of the year are very confident in both the, the ludic or the mechanical ideas and the narrative ideas they want to express. And the other big thing, although I think it's less profound, is that video games this year haven't been afraid to be bizarre. Yeah. Right? So like, even amongst, like, even, pro like, quote-unquote, the most generic, critically acclaimed video game of the year, I'd say is something like Horizon Zero Dawn, even that's a game with post-apocalyptic robot dinosaurs. And that's yeah. probably the most normal of the games that seem to be in game of the year type contention. Yeah. The, so, yeah go ahead. And I think, oh yeah, no, I, I think that's very much right. There's a comfort with not just being out there, but willing to, um, I was actually reading an interview with uh, Shigeru Miyamoto a few days ago where he was talking about, this is actually from months ago where he was talking about how, they um like the team the super mario odyssey team was really scared about how people would react to mario interacting with kind of normal uncanny valley looking people in new donk city and yeah that's and it's really telling that that's the very first thing you see in promotional materials for odyssey is they're not like shying away from it they're not um trying to hide it they're um it's basically put out straight in the open. Yeah, I mean, some people, I think, were put off by it, but I, I was just like, you know what? I'm going to roll with this. Let Mario be weird. Let Mario do his it, strange little pygmy man thing and it, deal with like the rest of the residents, however they look. I think it also helps that, and I know I've beaten on this drum a lot, that... Um, in something like, say, Sonic Adventure, you have normal people and you have hedgehogs. And in Mario, the normal people are treated as just as weird as the Day of the Dead skeletons or the fork people or the robot guard watering yeah. cans. They're almost like another species down to, like, they gave them all, like, they gave half of them, like, stereotypical New York dialect. So one of them's just like, forget about it. Uh, I don't know where, which is... Planet Brooklyn. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so that's Super Mario Odyssey. Um, Pumpkin, what have you been playing, man? Well, uh, for me, I've been playing... Uh, I'm a, I'm a, t a dad of uh, two kids, so I don't have a whole lot of time to play games, but most of the time I'm usually catching up to everybody else. So I'm still playing 
Arkham Knight for all for all things. I just got a PS4 maybe about a little over a year ago. Oh, okay, neat. How are you liking Arkham Knight? Uh, since I'm a Batman enthusiast, and that's to underplay it, uh, it's one of my more favorite games. I'm not really big on the on the uh, Batmobile. It kind of drives me nuts. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> is. It's like I, I, I love uh, you know flying through the city and doing that kind of thing, but uh, the missions that are oh, it has to be done with the Batmobile. You have to blow this up. Okay, all right. You know, it, it feels like if I was more free to do it when I wanted to, that'd be another thing. But I'm required to drive that thing through the city. Yeah, uh, so it's not it's as a little not, bit of a letdown. Um, but for me, when it comes to games, I'm going on uh, the thread that we were just talking about. Uh, games getting they're not afraid to get weird this year. I'm wondering what it's going to look like next year. We've got games right now like Wolfenstein 2 that are making kind of political commentary on the, I guess, the climate as it is now. I wonder what kind of games they're going to be like next year that are going to have kind of maybe a little bit of a climate of the current con- or you know contemporary ideals uh, in the U.S. and maybe the world. You know, those type of games, fighting games or just big idea games. I uh, think at some point we're going to see... Um... Like given especially the events of the past few weeks, we're probably going to see games where people abuse their power and get their comeuppance. Um, maybe not next year. I mean, these, th- these things have a development time, but at some point, I think this is going to be a theme in our, our art going forward. Uh, I also... Um... It's also worth, though, noting that, like, a lot of times, even when games aren't explicitly trying to comment on current events, they are often being made, you know, in the same, like, climate. So you'll probably see a lot of games that kind of inadvertently or maybe not entirely deliberately reflect uh, yeah. contemporary things. So, so not as overt as Wolfenstein, Wolfenstein uh, because of, you know, Nazis. Yeah. Well, yeah, like Wolfenstein was, I think there was like some parts of it that were, you know, I'm not sure. I never played the New Order. Um, My understanding is in a lot of ways, uh, the New Colossus is a very much a follow up to what um, it was doing in the New Order. But then they also, as it like was going on, presumably they were like bringing in real world politics along with what they were already interested in doing. Yeah, it seems like it was, like, it seems like this. they had the idea for the game, they're already making the game, and then once these events uh, started unfolding, they kind of steered into the skid and marketed it uh, a certain way, given uh, the current political climate. I, I mean, I haven't started Wolfenstein 2 yet. I Actually, funny story, I... I was like, yeah, I should probably get, well, I don't know when I'll get around to Wolfenstein 2. This is before it came out. And then I received an email uh, saying, oh, your pre-order is ready. I'm like, wait, I pre-ordered this game? When did that happen? <laughs> um, so, yeah, apparent, so it's just like sitting on my hard drive right now waiting to be played. Uh, but I'll, I'll get around to it. We can have a two well, Wolfenstein 2 at some point. Sorry, I've seen some play. I don't, I don't own the game myself, but I've seen some of the gameplay um, at a friend's house. And I saw, I mean, it was when you're saying they steered into the skid, they did so wholeheartedly. Um, they knew who their audience was, and they just played that up really well, I thought. Uh, it makes me interested in the game. I'm normally the kind of person, when I say I, I don't play as often or I'm not able to play as often, when I go into games or when I go to buy games, I think about the certain properties. I'm really, like I said, I'm big on Batman, but I'm also big on 
characters I can recognize, you know, ones that I'm, I'm familiar with, either, even from my childhood. So I even looked at the, uh, uh, the Thor uh, game adaptation, looked at it. I don't know if I'm ever going to get that, but I looked at it. Uh, so it's things like that that get my interest, but of course also fighting Nazis. You know, that's why Medal of Honor exists. Yeah. I mean, we used to have a whole genre of Nazi fighting shooters before Modern Warfare hit the scene. Yes. So. That was in the Halcyon days when the Nazis were wacky, fun, fictional characters. <laughs> Instead of going back to being the unfun, actual villains. What cartoony Indiana Jones Last Crusade type villains. Yeah, yeah. like, it used to be that you could, like, melt Nazis and set them on fire and nobody would, would say anything because they recognized that this was a video game and nobody's actually going out, going out there and setting people on fire or melting them. <laughs> um, but if you had to melt someone with fire, it better it might as well be a Nazi. Yeah. I, you know, even at this point, I, I have to agree, although I'm really not good on violence, uh, uh, except for video game violence. You should never see me play um, uh, Grand Theft Auto ever. <laughs> I'm terrible. But like it, terrible and wait, terrible well, in that you don't use violence. Like you, you politely carjack people. Hardly, <laughs> hardly. No, no, I'm I'm ruthless. Okay. Uh, my real life persona and my Grand Theft Auto persona are so disparate. <laughs> so, I, speaking of, I think I've told the story on the podcast before, but just in case, uh, I haven't. Um, so back when I lived in a dorm in my freshman year of university, uh, the guy who lived across the hall from me, he was like the meekest, quietest guy you'd ever meet. Um, he was like a devout Christian. Went to church every Sunday. Uh, he had immigrated from, from China, I think, like uh, seven or eight years ago. Um, anyway, he's like the, like the quietest, meekest guy you'd ever meet. He was super nice. Uh, one day I had my door open. I was playing uh, Vice City, I think, in my, in my room on my computer. Uh, he walks in and, you know, like it's normal, for, it's normal when you live in a door. People just walk into your room and like watch you doing whatever you're doing. So he walks in. He's just standing there for a couple of minutes. I'm driving around. And then he says, hit the old lady. <laughs> I'm like, what? No, I, I'm on a mission. I can't afford to hit the whole, the old lady. And then, and then he just starts laughing. He's like, uh, hit that kid. I'm like, there are no kids in this game. It's like, and he's like, go oh, find a kid and hit it. He's like, he just like went nuts trying to get me to kill people on, in my car. Um, I saw him in a different lights instead. Still the nicest speakest guy I'd ever made. Uh, but GTA. had kind of a, a whatchamacallit, um, a dark streak, shall we say. I think GTA allowed for pretty much all of us to, to live through our dark streak, even though, I mean, we're refined, wonderful people in real life, and our real persona are, you know, are these genuine nice people. Those games really allowed us to, you know, be demented and without repercussion. Um, you know, it's, or without only a token level of repercussion. Oh, well, yes, very much so. I, you know, I, I can remember just hanging out in the apartment and just doing the sniper rifle, you know, on occasion when I'd get bored. Um, and I mean, it's just thinking about it now. It's like, I wonder if somebody would be standing behind me, watching me play that game, thinking this guy's crazy. Yeah. I, I, I like if, if, my parents I, have never been big on like video game violence. I wonder if what they would react to if they saw me playing video games now. I mean, 
right now I'm playing like playing golf story, so I don't know <laughs> how, what they'd think of that. But that's a whole other story. Um, Kappa, what have you been playing? Uh, nothing but Destiny. Well, some Fallout shelter here and there, but Destiny too. Um, our clan's been doing pretty good actually. People are kind of coming along. We're gonna try to raid tonight at seven. Um, it's uh it's it's a weird experience right now because I think a lot of people and this happens in a lot of games, not just Destiny, but they're comparing the sequel to what was previously like the full game with four expansions and just oh there's not enough this there's not enough that but a lot of that's got to come along. Yeah, um, eventually. It's really kind of shown me like the the simplicity and the beauty in WoW you know, World of Warcraft always just being one game, if you think of it that way, with a ton of expansions rather than ever making a WoW 2, right? Because, like, you can always just say it's all this big one long continuation where I feel that Destiny is, but they have to kind of reset the button to get new people back in. Does that make sense? Like, if they just released another expansion and they said, okay, you guys go play with all these other people who have already got God-level gear and and all this other stuff, it, it it wouldn't feel any different. It would just be for most people, it would be more of the same, and you wouldn't get that new blood. Um, so the sequel makes sense. There's actually a story this time around. It's decent. Um, I, I enjoyed what I played. I mean, obviously, there's you know a bad guy trying to conquer the world. There's enough feelings and emotions in the game. It does the classic video game thing, though, where the all 100,000 people that are playing are the chosen one. You know what I mean? Where it's like, okay. you're the only one who has the ability to do this, but so does everybody else yeah. that's ever played so the game. How do they so, rationale like, co-op and PvP? Well, so I don't know. I don't spoiling Destiny, but they, by the end of it, it makes sense. Um, the Guardians in Destiny get their light from the Traveler through these little thing called ghosts that allow them to resurrect infinite number of times and makes them these you know badass fighting fighters. Um, the the Traveler is more or less trapped, kind of, and uh, most Guardians, almost all the Guardians, lose their light. Their ghost is unable to, but the chosen guardian that you play is able to kind of find a workaround for that. Um, so you spend most of the game kind of going okay. around doing stuff because nobody else can, because if they die, they die for real, um, if that makes sense. So that, that there's enough of a story there to kind of base the game around. Uh, the campaign's really short, I'd say about 10 hours, but by the end of it, you've learned most of the skills that you're going to need for both PvP and PvE, which is a really good idea for the game itself. Um I've been having a really good time. Destiny to me is more of a social thing, right? Like I play with my friends. I mean, like friends I haven't played forever. And the greatest thing that's happened to me is uh, when it's released on PC, it's Battle.net compatible. It uses Battle.net for like its social servers, stuff like that. Um, So all my old, old friends I used to play a ton of WoW with, ton of uh, Overwatch with other games have kind of all popped back in, um, you know, and, and we've kind of just picked back up where we left off, which is really cool. Um, three or four good friends I haven't played with in a while showed back up. And then, of course, I added a couple people from the site. Um, and we're, it, it's, a, it's a social thing. I think if you just look at Destiny as I want to play it, get to the highest level, beat it, and then you know that's it for me, you're not going to have a great time with it. But it, it's, it's about running around with your friends, doing missions, doing stories, that kind of stuff that I really enjoy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I... I, I don't know about this one just yet. I, it feels hard to judge it because of how much time I put into one. Um, I, I did take a lot of breaks in Destiny 1 um, between expansions and stuff. I kind of hit that level. 
Um, I didn't have as many friends. When Destiny 1 came out, it was right at the time, basically, all the people I played with had kind of fractured, right? Some went yeah. to Xbox, some went to PlayStation. Most, I know, that stayed on PC. So when Destiny 2 was announced for PC, a lot of my friends were like, hey, you know, bring me up to speed with this. And I was like, well, most of them haven't even played Halo, so I don't really have that even common, you know, touchstone with them. So I'm like, well, uh, it's it's Borderlands, a little more serious, Um and and better mechanics and and i think that kind of sold a lot of them on it and um still liking it i i know there was some controversy with the microtransactions really they're not a big deal um the destiny subreddit is one of the worst places i i, I can possibly imagine for the game it's just it's constant complaining and the, the, i don't know if, if you yeah, guys subreddit ever sir can be really toxic yeah i, I don't Reddits know are not cool yeah, I don't know if you guys have experienced this too, but it's like people will make these posts as if they speak for the entire community, right? Like, what you guys got to do, Bungie, is X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, no, nah, I actually kind of like that. You know, like right now they have an event that a lot of people hate. It's called the Faction Rally. You pledge to a faction, right? There's three in the game. Everybody turns in tokens. At the end of it, whatever faction got the most tokens, everybody who was pledged to that fa- faction gets a, a free weapon, right? It's like a three-way splat fest. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, it, it's kind of cool. It's not really game-breaking. No, you know, the, the faction that wins doesn't really, you know, get anything that everybody else doesn't. But, I mean, it's just nothing but complaints about it, you know? Um, and they try to do something cool, kind of a timed event. It used to be in Destiny 1, you would just pledge to a faction, and, like, if you wore a certain piece of gear, you would get the tokens. But now they said, no, we're not going to do that every couple weeks. You don't have to wear the gear, but you just pledge to that faction, and then, you know, you get the rewards. But... They're trying new stuff. There's a lot of resistance in the community. A lot of people want all the stuff that was in Destiny 1 in Destiny 2. Of course, it can't because they, you know, they got a model here with season passes and expansions and stuff. Yeah. Um, and I, don't, I know season passes are kind of you know, a, another one of those words, but I felt like I got enough content with the season pass for Destiny 1 that I didn't feel bad about buying it for this one. Um, I like their model of two small expansions, one huge expansion. I think it makes sense for me for what I would expect from a season pass. Um, where it's closer to a DLC model with me. That's kind of what I'm used to, right? My baseline for what I used to call expansion packs was, oh, okay, I get one new big expansion pack with a bunch of stuff, but in between I get little, you know, quality of life improvements or new units or skins or stuff like that. And that's basically what you're getting with Destiny for the season pass. You're getting one real expansion, two little, you know, intermediate expansions kind of bridge the gap between the base game and the expansion and along the way, it kind of ramps up your light level and your weapons and it gives you more of a toolkit to work with so that when you get to that real expansion, it feels like a totally different game from where you started. Um, Bungie knows what they're doing. I mean, I, the Activision part of it is, is always a little scary, but um, no cheaters, no hackers that I've seen at all. Um, there's a lot of little glitches, like in any kind of these games where people cheese their way through stuff, but nothing I'd call game-breaking. Um, and I, I, I'm really enjoying my time with it so far. Um, and hopefully we're able to raid tonight and, uh, get the raid done. It's going to be a, a bunch of us just trying to figure it all out together. Yeah. Sounds like it's going to be, it's going to be a lot of fun. And, uh, it's nice that you can get these, uh, these big cooperative social experiences going. Um, I miss, I miss those days when I was younger, I used to play more multiplayer and I don't as much anymore. That's one of the best things about it, too. I mean, I left that out, but, you know, um, you know, same situation as a lot of you guys, you know, full time job, wife, kids, all that stuff. Um, It's hard for me to, like, you know, jump in in a game where it requires three or four hours to make any significant difference. 
I've always felt like with Destiny, whatever you're doing, it's contributing somehow towards you getting better. You know, you're always working towards something. You're always getting a token. You're always like, um, even if it's something you can't use, you can always recycle it into shards, which then you can use and stuff like that. So it doesn't, it kind of values your time, which I think is important in an online game. Um, but it doesn't do it so much in a way like, I don't know, have any of you guys played World of Warcraft recently or? Never. Uh, no. Not recently. So, Sorry. Just no. kind of as a, a quick aside. Um, it used to be like, World of Warcraft used to be really social. You'd make friends, you'd join a guild, you'd go places with them, do things. That's all gone now. Now you click a button and you're automatically teleported to a dungeon with random people you've never met before who all click the same button and you guys do the thing together that you all watch videos on from a streamer who did it first. And it's, it feels very mechanical, right? Whereas, like, I, I never really felt that with Destiny. If my buddy wants to run strikes with me, I jump in with him. We go to the strike. We do, we fly to the planet. Like, even just those little animations of it doing all that um, feels very cool. It feels like more like you're traveling a universe with a friend rather than just clicking a button in a menu, which is necessarily what you're doing. But a lot of the window dressing that they apply to it makes it feel less like that. Yeah, I think it's, it's important to have... Um... Like if you're going to make a social game, you should probably facilitate the social interaction, which, to my to my understanding, Destiny does really well. Uh, I would I don't know about well. There, there's some drawbacks. They they have a really good community lead right now, but she's kind of she's basically saying that she wants the des the part the social part of Destiny to be an opt-in experience, which I think maybe we can all kind of at least understand, if not agree with, right? Right. So if you want to talk to people, you basically have to friend them or at, it, there's not like a Baron's chat or like just a general chat in the game on PC, which a lot of people are rankled by. But, you know, they're saying, look, has anything ever really good come up with those chats? A lot of, uh, you know, no, um, so a lot of like swastikas probably. Yeah. A lot of, their answer to it all is like clans, right? So join a clan. There's your group of friends to, you know, to do things with. And there's a lot of resources off site, but. They're looking at ways to kind of bring in some functionality, but right now it's kind of a very much like an opt-in uh, thing. Like even on PC, in order for people to send you, you know, whispers or tells or private messages, you actually have to opt into that even. So people can't, you know, send you messages after a, a PvP match like, you know, you scrub, what did you do? But also people can't say, hey, do you want to run the raid with me or anything else? So it's kind of a weird system right now. I, I don't know which which is the right way, but it'll be interesting to see where they end up going with it. Yeah, uh, it'll be neat to see how it develops because, especially with a game like Destiny, the first, like Destiny One now is unrecognizable from where it was when it started. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and and I think that's where it, this one will end up. And I think what a lot of people are kind of reacting against is that it's not there right now. It doesn't feel. It feels like a continuation in some ways, but it doesn't feel. I don't know, but I think it doesn't it'll feel like there. it's there yet. Right. Exactly. All right, um, let's move on to our favorite segment of the entire podcast. Um, Project yes. Sonic Watch 2017 is back. So we do this segment every time there's an important piece of Sonic news or a new Sonic game comes out because, as you all know, Sonic is the Gamescast's most loved video game franchise. Like, maybe second to Bubsy. Which also came out recently. There's a new Bubsy game. If you guys are interested, I'm sure it's oh, incredible. Um, uh, every we time I do this, I cannot. I, I just want to argue so much. With that. <laughs> I mean, all right. I'm just gonna get to that one because I know we always do the Sonic. I get it. But look, Sonic to me is always gonna be 
you know how like kids when we were kids, like one kid got the Sega and one kid got the Mario, or, or one kid got Sega, one kid got the Nintendo. And so like Sonic was always like the argument to Mario, right? Well, Sonic is cool. Or look at his spikes and stuff. Like I don't know where is there really this kind of crazy love for Sonic that we need a game every year that just bombs? Like I mean, kids are are not kids, but people are buying it. So I guess that there is a need. Personally, you know, um, you all know me as uh, a very much Mario, um, maybe aficionado is the right term. <laughs> um, I'm not really sure, but uh, yeah, no, Sonic, it, I feel like we've done this a lot, but it's always worth pointing out that Sonic basically exists as a corporate mascot who was yeah. only created to basically front a company and be a rival to a corporate competitor. Like Mario is, I think, the mascot of Nintendo and in some ways the mascot of gaming as a whole because it makes sense because he was designed as a character to work in a video game and every part of him is designed to emphasize that because he was created at a time where like the technology, like the technology could not really present a person with a face and, a ha and hair. So that's why he has a mustache and a hat. And that's why he wears overalls that are red and blue. It's like every part of him is designed for, to actually serve a function while Sonic's is very much designed to serve like corporate and marketing ends. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I've never had that attachment to it. Right. Like if I didn't, I feel like there's a lot of nostalgia fueling the love for Sonic, but Man, guys, I mean, when, when do we give up on this? <laughs> when do we give Sonic? up? Well, no, no, Sonic no, no, Mania I, is apparently good. Yeah. Well, that, that was the fan one, though, right? That was the official, that is yeah. the official one made by people who made fan games. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I can get that. And I, I'm guessing that had a lot to do with probably nostalgia or people being like, this is the Sonic I remember. But I don't know if there's ever been a 3D Sonic that's been anything other than eh. You know, it's Generations is apparently good. I, I have to say that I've, I've barely played any Sonic games since I was a kid. And the only person in my in my uh, sphere or my area that loves Sonic is my son. He's seven. Yeah. So <laughs> so I don't know. I don't really know many adults that look at Sonic and think, wow, that's the game I got to get. Yeah, I, 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 would yeah I don't know. But okay. I really like the Sonic Boom cartoon because it's literally a low rent version of The Simpsons, but <laughs> like with Sonic, it's yeah, incredibly bizarre. It's also bizarre. full of like meta jokes, right? Yeah, the probably the most iconic um, episode is one where Sonic, um, where Eggman has like built a, a weapon on the water. And so Sonic, who, of course, sucks in the water and is terrible in water levels, is terrified. And eventually he has to keep, re like, retreating into the recesses of his psyche. And eventually he finds a um, an image of himself that's just Sonic's voice actor, Roger Craig Smith, in real life, wearing a Sonic costume, taking out the garbage. <laughs> what? Wow. <laughs> Um, yeah. There is an episode, the season one finale involves um, Eggman trying to bring in all of the the season's villains, which are not like, it's not Metal Sonic, it's not Chaos or whatever, it's the intern at the local, like, shitty McDonald's ripoff, the, like, guy who tries to cheat Knuckles out of a mortgage. <laughs> and, <laughs> what? And then Shadow comes in. This is cartoon. In. 
And then at the basically the big gimmick is that Shadow comes in and Eggman is super excited and is basically a Shadow the Hedgehog fanboy. <laughs> and it, it's incredibly bizarre. Um, it, <laughs> like, yeah, it's, I, I don't are, know what's going on here. There are jokes about like Hillary Clinton's email server in an episode that's all about Eggman trying to build a social media site. So why is Eggman trying to build Facebook? Like, so, 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 <laughs> because the, the by an IRS employee. Well, the the premise of the episode is that Eggman has received a chain letter and is terrified about not um, sending it out to enough people. So he tries to develop a social media site to convince people to be on it. It's not 1998. So he... We don't do chain letters anymore. Wow, that is that is really really just complicated. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Here's an episode uh, anyway. where Sonic becomes the mayor and basically fast tracks um, egregious amounts of legislation. And so Eggman tries to become a dictator because um, Knuckles meddling has stopped the uh, garbage like service from adequately running. Wait a minute. Hold on. Hold. That sounds like current events. That yeah. sounds that sounds like something that actually could happen. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so that's that's a Sonic Boom cartoon. Uh, the reason we're doing Project Sonic Sorry. Watch today is uh, Sonic Forces just came out. So the new 3D Sonic we were, we were alluding to. And reviews are not good. It's got, like, I know Metacritic, you know, there, there are its pitfalls. But it's sitting at a 58 on Metacritic right now. It looks terrible. The best um, review I've heard is from our own Gooch extension. Yeah. Gooch extension liked it. I've heard people say it's okay. Like, it's not the worst thing in the world. But nobody's, like running out to to buy this and, and like love it yeah the, um, uh, it's it's weird for me because i mean i feel like a lot of platformers have upped their games lately um you know yeah. i mean you got you got stuff like cuphead coming out now that i mean at least you know even if you, you don't like that hard as hell type you know style of play at least it looks and plays and sounds gorgeous so if you don't do that um, you know, if you don't have that part of it going for you. And then what I'll, everything I've been reading about Sonic Forces was that the gameplay itself was bad. So you kind of don't have either. You don't have a unique, interesting look, and you don't have good level design and good good gameplay. That's kind of a... Yeah. I mean... <laughs> so the hook here is that um, not only do you play as Sonic, you also play as your very own Sonic <laughs> OC. So we're yeah, talking about, like... Is there a Sonic fandom, really? Well, this is like uh, 1998 uh, GeoCities pages come to life, basically, right? Like, it really yeah. is essentially deviant art. The game. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I I do need to. Yeah, I, I do think it's worth pointing out a couple things. For one, is that the premise is that a lot of the story or the game is very very meta because you know a lot of Sonic uh, stories for better and in a much larger instance for worse, do like to posit Sonic as like a weird dystopian adventure, which is bizarre. <laughs> and that's part of the story is that you're time traveling and your OC has to rescue Sonic in a dystopian future where Sonic is imprisoned on like the moon or something. And Eggman has gathered together a group of past 3D Sonic villains and this new guy who I guess is sort of like a bat with made of cubes or something. Yeah. Um, and so the only way to save the world is to bring in your Sonic OC who, I mean, will include some links to videos in the dump. It's, 
they look terrifying. <laughs> it, Everything about this just... I don't understand why Sonic games are so intent on being serious. Yeah, because that's a good... It's like the DC movies uh, uh, of... Of platformers. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, like it's... It always has this weird, dark, like, undertone to it. Like, Eggman is out there doing all this super, like, evil-sounding stuff, you know? But it's it's goofy, I mean, right? Like, it's... I don't know. That's actually one of the things I did like about the cartoon, and after this, I'll shut up about it, which is that they do kind of, ha- like, tip their hand to that with an episode where Eggman sends Sonic to a dimension where Sonic never existed. And Eggman is, of course, a dictator, but it's just a weird universe where, like... In this dystopian future, Knuckles is instead like you're is like a like a weight training infomercial star. Hmm. Um, <laughs> That's a really odd angle to take. <laughs> um, the you know I, I think a lot of it is I mean Kappa, you said from the very beginning that Sonic people liked him because he was edgy and spiky and spiny, and I think that's a big part of it. Um, because Sonic is meant to be cool, he has to be exciting. He can't just be silly or light. Or, well, yeah. that was a, that was that was also Sega's persona back then too. If you of remember, course. Nintendo was the kiddie console. Uh, Sega does what Nintendo don't. You know what I mean? It's we've got look at all these adult games. This is a serious system. It's not, you know. And I I think a lot of that carried over into their mascots persona. You know where, look how serious our goofy blue hedgehog really is. It's, you know it's probably. The thing Definitely. is, like, like the Sonic Boom, like, Wolfman's talking about the Sonic Boom cartoons. The Sonic Boom games leaned into the silliness. So it's weird for them to go back to the, to the faux darkness of, like, Adventure and Sonic the, and Shadow the Hedgehog for this game. Like, mm. people, like, the Sonic Boom games are terrible because they were glitchy pieces of shit. But at least people weren't complaining about the tone. They're like, the tone is right. You just fucked up everything else. So yeah. they went back to the same tone and continue to fuck up everything else. <laughs> I... They had a they had a quiet, well, not even quiet, a very loud intensity. And that was that was Sega's um, way of selling everything was intense. Yeah, Whereas... literally like that guy screaming Sega. You remember like that was their whole, it's, ah! you know, like that was their <laughs> thing for a while. Yeah. The, um, yeah, it's bizarre. Um it, in some ways, it really feels like a culmination of a lot of the weird elements of Sonic branding in kind of the way that Sonic 2006 was this weird culmination of all of the fundamental, like, ideological problems that is Sonic. Mm. Um, where it's, in that game, it's, like, trying to rip off, like, a latter-day Final Fantasy game and also Half-Life 2 and also Dragon Ball Z and also trying to be a crazy non-linear story and it tries to have all of these different mechanics and it's... Uh, I think it's really... There's a there's a part in the uh, intro, like the Shadow the Hedgehog like cinematic CGI intro that shows Sonic and all of the non-Shadow main characters running around at exactly the same speed. And I... And, this is going to sound really weird, but I feel like this is the fundament one of the fundamental problems of Sonic on a mechanical level is that every Sonic game needs to be fast. We can agree on that. Yeah, it's like the yeah. theme of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so every Sonic game has to be built to accommodate a character who can run really, really, really fast. Mm-hmm. 
that's the, this and trying to do it in like a very you know faux scientific way and so by extension every character who interacts in that game has to be able to move at that kind of similar speed and so you have to design a game to accommodate a system that's incredibly difficult because you need to make sure that levels are large enough interactable enough satisfying enough to go through multiple times they have to do all these different things but then you also have to have characters who can other characters who can interact with that and so sonic and so every character is basically sonic but with a different fur color and targeting a different demographic and so by the end sonic himself kind of doesn't matter and so now you have a sonic game where sonic gets to be rescued by your own original character he uses a grapple uh. gun and a flamethrower and, and <laughs> dress in a surgical mask and a knight's hat and a gamer uh, baseball cap turned backwards. So yes. he's a generic heroic figure here. Yes, with very creepy eyes. <laughs> no, all they need oh, to do is let you like uh, 3D, 3D custom print it for yourself and you'll just print money, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So in conclusion... Sonic Forces, eh. <laughs> not the best. Yeah, so that's Project Sonic Lost 2017. Um, I'm sure more Sonic news will come uh, for our podcast in the future, and we will report it because that is our duty here at the Arcana <laughs> Gamescast. Um, let's move on to our main topic of discussion. Uh, we're going to talk about how video games are depicted in other media. So this is... A topic we wanted to talk about for a while, uh, because we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about video games themselves, or the business of making video games. But video games are now these important cultural artifacts that have influenced other media and now are part of society, and they get depicted in other works like books, television, movies, and in fact, some books and movies have been made explicitly about video games. So I want to start off talking about one of my favorite recent examples of this, which is Wreck-It Ralph. Have you guys seen Wreck-It Ralph? Absolutely. Own it. I have not, actually. Um, I want to, though. Yeah, it's actually, it's a really good movie. Um, So the premise is that there is this uh, guy who plays essentially the villain in a Donkey Kong-esque game, and he wants to be the hero of his own game. So he goes on a quest, sort of hopping through arcade cabinets, and he meets uh, this other girl who's like a glitched character along the way. And uh, events ensue. Um, he has to, at some point, rescue the arcade system. It's, you know, the, the kind of typical Disney kind of plot structure that you'd expect. Heroes. But Heroes. it's really good. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead. The hero's journey. Yeah, it's, it's like the hero's journey played out in... Uh, with a lot of video game references, and um, I think they they licensed a lot of video game characters, like existing video game characters, for it. So uh, I think like at some point there's there's like Sonic the Hedgehog was at like a group therapy session for some reason. I thought the big thing was the sequence that I've seen, the one part I've seen, which is um, Ralph in a, like a ther- like a sort of therapy group with other video game villains like M. Bison and Bowser and Dr. Yeah, Eggman. it's Bowser, not Sonic, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I thought was uh, it's really effective. It plays off nostalgia without uh, making it the point of the experience. 
it tells an actual story while you know being still being chock full of references to video games that people enjoyed um, and it understands video games both in the specific referential sense but also generically like this is how a video game works and we're going to structure our, our plot sort of around how uh, a video game would be structured so it worked it worked really well to me um, do you got, are there any other I want to start with I've got a bunch, but I want to start with one I think that probably had the most impact as me, like not just as a kid, but as like a blossoming, you know, gamer. I don't even hate that term, but whatever. Yeah. Um, you guys ever see The Last Starfighter? Yep. Nope. So, no, sorry. No? Okay, so what? Do, I'll just give you a quick summary. Basically, there's an arcade machine, right? And this kid plays it and plays and plays and gets like super good at it. Um, and like, you know, he's setting world records. He's just basically the best at this game. Turns out it's not a game at all. It's uh, aliens put it on Earth to basically try to find out if if they could find the best pilot in the world to save their race from extinction. Um, so it was kind of like a uh, a test training device out there. Um, so the kid eventually, you know, gets goes up to space and he uses his <clears throat> patented move called the Death Blossom to save the aliens, you know, and become kind of the hero of it. <clears throat> it's a goofy, cheesy '80s movie, but. I mean, it was always, I'm not going to lie, I mean, probably now still, it's in the back of my mind, like, what if this is, you know, like, The Last Starfighter, like, what if this is the test to see if I'm, you know, but um, <clears throat> playing it, watching that movie a lot, it kind of made me feel like, you know, I don't know, like, video games could be something so much cooler than what they were at the time, because, you know, let's be real, around that time, they weren't, they weren't much to them, um, so I really love that movie, kind of, as a cheesy, it's in that um, like Flight of the Navigator type vein that of movies that were kind of popular at the time, where you know the kid is the chosen one and has to go to space or you know fight aliens or do whatever. Ninety percent uh, uh, of science fiction is a little boy has the power to save the world. Yeah, well, I think it also jumped on the whole you know Star Wars and Tron. You know, let's see if we can have Star Wars and Tron in one movie. And then yeah. <laughs> That's, that's actually—I never even thought about. That. That's a really good way to kind of, you know, put it all together. You got the the chosen one, but also you've got this crazy video game world and and aliens. And it it, it was a it was a cool movie as a kid to watch. I mean, it probably doesn't hold up like ninety nine percent of the stuff I remember, <laughs> but um, I, I always liked it. I, I I even like to this day, whenever I use like the bomb, you know, in like those like uh, bullet hell games, I'm always like, yeah, here comes the death blossom. <laughs> like, it's in the back of my mind, so it always stuck with me. Um, and it. It's one of those first really early video game movies, um, you know, that video game depicted as a movie. And, of course, my parents never really got it. They're like, what, what do you mean? This is dumb. But, <laughs> but again, I, I did like it. I, that sounds unbelievably similar to what I guess was probably the one around which we're all kind of dancing. And I think, Kappa, you might be the only one who's actually experienced, and that's um, – Ready Player One by yeah. um, who's Ernest that guy? Klein. Yeah, I, Ernest Klein. Yeah, I have a feeling that he based uh, he, he so Ready Player One is weird for me because it kind of feels to me like. Uh, do you guys see the latest last season of South Park at all? No. Okay, Sorry, so no. they had this kind of ongoing thing called uh, Member Berries, where it's just kind of like the idea behind it is that nostalgia just for nostalgia's sake. It just kind of like it scratches an itch for some people. That's what Ready Player One really was for me. Um, it was just a lot of 
you know, pop culture references, 80s kids, 90s kids type stuff. But it really didn't go anywhere with them for me. It just kind of had them exist. Uh, it had a lot of little cool ideas. Uh, the plot is more or less um, – do you guys remember Peter Molyneux when he did the cube thing? The little Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like that same idea. Somebody's going to win a world-changing thing from this best game developer thing. He's hidden inside this MMO. And it's all hidden behind layers of kind of like 80s and 90s trivia. But they're really kind of – I don't know. Like I'm sure that a lot of people were like, cool, I got that. I knew that. But like to me it was like, oh, yeah, everybody's going to know that. Like if you were to post most of the stuff just on AV – well, the avocado in general – we'd all get it, you know, like it, it's not like it's super deep type stuff. So I think there was a lot of kind of that going on in the background. It wasn't awful. I mean, I, I see the hate it gets. And to me, I mean, I get people maybe hate the guy who wrote it or whatever, but it's just, it's not deserving of it. It's kind of like, it's so innocuous to me. Like it doesn't deserve either super, like it doesn't deserve to be put on pass. It doesn't deserve to be kicked in the gut. But I, when Steven Spielberg is going to be the one doing it, I can see kind of why where people are running along with that. Uh, but it it was just to me it was just okay. Um, it, it's it's a it, it's a book I wouldn't encourage anybody to read. But maybe if you know you you're really hard up just to you know have a have a nostalgia trip down memory lane, it might be fun. Um, but no, Last Starfighter. I I think in, in some ways it was it was a lot. It, it was difficult. It was different in that. Um, the kid in the in, in Last Starfighter is kind of just one like he's just like given a gift, you know, like he's just like the chosen one. He doesn't he's not the kind of kid who studied all up on, um, you know, how to all this weird 80s trivia type stuff that like the kid in the um, in the book or in the kid in Ready Player One does. So it's kind of different in that way. It's more of like a like a Luke Skywalker type thing. Um, and it, it's a little it's a little more adult in some ways. Um, even though Ready Player One has this really grim, dark, post-apocalyptic feel in the background, but once they're in the game world, it really never comes back up. Um, so yeah, I, I can kind of see where that's similar, but no, this is more like kid in a trailer park. Um, ha- he has the gift, saves an alien species, and then, um, you know, due to his skill at, at a video game. I think uh, uh, I think games in general, when it comes to movies, are probably depicted better in in films than they are, say, on television. Um, oh and yeah, I, and from my my understanding is mostly because television views anything else outside of it as competition. So of course they're not going to view movies as being great. They're probably going to make a movie like for for example, uh, Seinfeld would have movies called Rachel Rachel Rochelle or Rochelle Rochelle, making fun of movies and making them seem dumb. And well, then I don't think that's so much of like a weird like metatextual competition. I just think that's like an enduring cynicism. <laughs> it's a a shortcut to showing that a character is like lazy or immature is to show them like sitting on a couch staring at a at a game screen playing a video game right like i'm thinking particularly of what was that scene in breaking bad where jesse's playing like a video game when he's kind of just like done with everything i believe it's actually sonic the hedgehog 2006 really I'm pretty sure that it might not be that, but there's definitely a part where Sonic 06 or Sonic Unleashed shows up. And I was just, I can't really honestly don't know how to react to that. But it's definitely shown as like, he's given up. He's just checked out of the world and he's just, you know what I mean? He's playing video games. So he must be done with everything. Uh, It's kind of used as that type of like shortcut. And I've seen that a lot in TV depictions of video games where it's just, you know, 
it cuts to a character just kind of slouched back on a couch with the controller in his hand, kind of a dead look in his eyes, um, you know, playing in a game. And like, that's, that's the TV shorthand for like, look at this lazy schlub or whatever. Um, Broad city does it a lot too with Bevers, um, you know, where he's kind of on the, on the couch playing video games where, you know, Abby's trying to do all this stuff and it's just, well, look how lazy this schlub is, you know, but that's his character. I get it. But I mean, it, that that's kind of a short uh, show a guy playing video games. And that, that to me, that's always been like what TV does with it and why a lot of TV examples, I think, are a lot less interesting than what I see from movies that are kind of focused around, you know, there might be more to this video game stuff, especially in the 80s. I mean, Tron, you mentioned um, the other one I was going to mention was uh, War Games, of course. Um, that was a really kind of you know, early example of, I guess, what could go wrong with video games. What in that kind of height of, you know, computers are scary type feel. Um, War games was always that one where, you know, what if a kid could destroy the world by beating a computer in a in a game type thing? Um, I think, I think with the '80s, that really stemmed from two things. One is that um, video games were this like crazy neon weird possible thing while in the 90s and onwards obviously video games have you know come a long way in terms of graphics and the potential for storytelling and the diversity of audiences they can reach but they're not really exciting in that way and the other is that to be honest a lot of those 80 movies were kind of just shallow and looking for a new trend yeah, and yeah, that's a good it, way to put it. it it's, it's very much like something they picked up on to, to run with. It's like, honestly, I mean, quality aside, it's really not necessarily any different from something like, say, Break Into Electric Boogaloo or yeah. the um, or Rappin, which was can- the Canon groups. They wanted to rip off their own film, so they did a rap version of Break In called Rappin. Do you guys remember, I don't know if you ever saw this one, um, there was, uh, along those lines, there's a movie called The Wizard with mm-hmm. Fred Savage. Where it's kind of like a a feel-good movie, you know, where they're going to go play in this video game championship and, like, the bad guy has the power glove and that's how he's able to beat everybody. It it was very commercial feeling. Um, But, yeah, it was it was that was kind of along the lines of, I think, what you're saying, which is where Hollywood just kind of viewed uh, video games in a way of like this kind of like this is where all the kids are going to be at. So let's kind of pull them in with this you know, thing that makes absolutely no sense in a way, but, um, it was, it was a weird movie. Um, and that, that one always kind of like, there was a counselor that taught them video games. Remember? And there was like a house that they all went to, to learn skills. And it, it was, it was not focused on realism, but a real weird movie. I just remember and, the kid that was the wizard was the, like, didn't talk very much. And so of course, yeah. all, all gamers don't talk very much. They're all, you know, inward, they're all quiet, you know, until they get put in front of a game and all of a sudden they're geniuses and everything goes yeah. great. <laughs> um, that's probably why I feel like some of the more interesting um, depictions of games aren't ones involving real games. Like one of the ones I was thinking of was Existence, uh, oh, the yeah. David Cronenberg horror yeah. thriller, where video games, it, where it's kind of like, like a lot of things Cronenberg does, it's an intersection of sex and flesh. So people play video games on, like, human-style organs that can go into their minds. And so it's not so much a video games as this weird outside force or this kind of corrupting influence. It's just another part of something that you dissect. Yeah. Um, so I, Existence was one I really thought of, too. And I got to say, one of my favorite things to do, like, just in life is, you know how Cronenberg always creates these, like, weird 
words for like futuristic type things. You know, people like yeah. they plug into the biojack, and once they're in the biojack, they go down the 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 neuro portal into like I just love all that stuff about that movie because like everything has this cool futuristic sounding name, and the, people just throw it around like, oh yeah, of course you should know what we're talking about. Um, along that line, Lawnmower Man too, right? That's kind of another one that was a yeah. little bit like that, where you go into this crazy weird video game world, and it's you know you you can be God there and. I, I, I don't know if that was the first, but it's definitely one of the first I remember where that whole idea where if you die in virtual reality, you die in real life. And that definitely kind of uh, <laughs> stuck like, around like Sword forever. Sword Art's the, the big one like that nowadays. Well, yeah. That, that certainly the Matrix. Yeah, that's it, what I'm going to go to also. It's like that influence the Matrix with the, that being a whole – essentially a game setup. You go when, you go punch into the Matrix and you're playing a game again. Yeah. Yeah. It's very much, I mean, you in the Matrix, you know, you get extra power-ups, you get new weapons and tools, you level up. At one point, you even fight a boss. Actually, um, Aliens kind of has a very similar structure. Which is uh, really sad that there was never a good Matrix video game, right? I mean... Oh, like, it would have been awesome if they did. Yeah. God, what a waste of um, opportunity there. <laughs> kind of going on that road. Um, there's another game that I really think is ultimately about video games that no one really talks about it as a video game, and that's Inception. Mm, that's yeah. a good one. Yeah, with the different levels. It's yeah, like the build... one big cheat cheat code too. That's why yeah, how people couldn't appreciate that movie. I didn't understand it. What was going on? Have you never played a video video game in your entire life? Yeah, yeah. You're in another level now. You just imagine, you know, you're on this level, but. Uh, yeah, that's a really good example. Inception as a video game movie. I mean, but there's there's a lot of weird stuff going on in that movie besides just the the dream stuff too. I um that's why um to be honest, I see like Inception and Existence and The Matrix is sort of like the gallant to the goofus that is um the sickening and repulsive gamer. Uh, not the uh term which like you Kappa, I don't like. I'm talking about the um, Neville the Dean Gerard Taylor Butler movie. Yes, the Neville <laughs> Dean Taylor movie starring Gerard Butler, where Milo Ventimiglia from Heroes plays a rapist. And basically, there's only two video games in this universe where people are for where um, Michael C. Hall, who in his like most ridiculous Southern accent, <laughs> traps people, traps like convicted felons in a video game universe where other people can like hunt them for sport. And there's only two types of games in this universe. And that's a very like brown, banal Call of Duty clone and, or Counter-Strike clone. And then one that's like a meant to be kind of like a second life. That's this weird, hypersexed, miserable world. And it's real. It's just a deeply unpleasant movie, but it's kind of this interesting way that people I, I think, like, when we're talking about games, there's this idea of them being in spaces. And that's something that I think maybe the best video game movies can be about. Um, because I've got one example. Um, because uh, um, where they're about um, people kind of entering these distinct spaces where the rules are a little different and what you're supposed to do is a little different. Yeah, I think a lot of that is is probably based on when games first come came out. You got a lot of people who like see a kid on a couch and just be totally zoned out, and they were like, I, "I think a lot behind a lot of that is the idea that games are going to take you over. You're going to lose yourself. You're going to lose who you are just by playing this game long enough." And that's in the background of a lot of movies if you think about it about games. Yeah, I um, one question I have, um, Merv. 
Um, are you interested in talking about film adaptations or cartoon adaptations of video games? Because I feel like that's a whole important area because a lot of those are very much about video games, whether or not they know it. Sure. I mean, I think um, like going off that sort of segue into that, um, there have been a lot of cartoons sort of not about existing video game properties, but about video games in general. Um, and especially it's been a huge theme in anime. Like I've, I've got a list here of just anime about video games. There's like Sword Art Online, Gamers, New Game, Dot Hack, Recover an MMO Junkie. And there's a lot more too. There are also uh, series like Konosuba. They're about sending people to video game-esque worlds. Um, and in those cases, like it's almost a genre. Like some of these are just about like people who play video games or make video games, but um, series like Sword Art Online or Dot Hack are about people like plugging into video game worlds, getting lost in them. Um, and Sword Art Online ha- is you know one of the one I shouldn't say the originator of the meme, one of the popularizers of the meme. If you die in the game, you die in real life. Um, so it's got all of these elements that we were talking about earlier, like having this other world, having people um, sort of get lost in, in a video game, as Kevin mentioned earlier. Uh, but those are about, those are cartoons about um, fictional video games. They're also, as you mentioned, Wolfman, cartoons based on video game properties. The one that I remember growing up was, do you guys remember the Donkey Kong Country 3D anime cartoon? Yeah, it was, it was I do. really ugly and terrible. Um, yeah, We've been awful. watching, well, not been, we tried watching it a couple times in Rabbit because we have a, a goal to try to watch as many um, video game adaptations as possible, and we couldn't last more than like three minutes both times. It's atrocious. <laughs> yeah, there's it's a so, so bad. It's all up on YouTube if you ever want to watch it. Yeah, my, my kid had gotten into the uh, the Mario series, you know, the live action slash... Uh... The Super Mario Brothers yeah. Super Show. Oh man, what an awful show! I mean, it's just it's just <laughs> awful. The live action. I they mean, like, like I think <laughs> until you've watched it, you probably might have some good memories about it. But oh man, I'm telling you, I and actually, um, I had, was at a midnight launch for Super Smash Brothers Brawl and actually won a DVD of them <laughs> for like six episodes. I've watched actually a ton of it because I'm obsessed with bad everything. <laughs> <laughs> As a as a parent, I have to veto some things that my my kids do. For example, that Mario show they tried to start watching on Netflix. I don't know how long ago it was, but I had to say I had to be like, no, you guys need to find another show to watch. Yeah, so, I I give them a couple, and then I'm like, nah, we're done. Well, from there they moved directly to the Sonic show. I was like, what do you hate? <laughs> do you hate that much? <laughs> that Sonic yeah. show was was terrible. I mean, it's it was almost as if uh, somebody thought, you know, it's. The thought of having that show and then having it make no point. There was no point to the game, to the to not only the game to me, but also the show itself. It had served no purpose other than to put a product on the on the screen somehow. It's funny you mentioned the Sonic cartoon because there's like five Sonic cartoons. <laughs> well, there's the one from the nineties that had uh, Yeah, there's two from the nineties. They actually ran I think you mean the one where it's a dystopian future. Yes. Yes. Because there's yeah, because the thing is, is that that was actually airing opposite another Sonic cartoon. <laughs> that was specifically how many friggin' Sonic cartoons they need, man. <laughs> Not none, but um, well, except for Sonic Boom. Um, how many games do they need? That that's the answer right there. Because the world needs Sonic. Because <laughs> there's Sonic the Hedgehog, which was the 
one starring Jaleel White, and it's like very bad sub Tex Avery cartoon that's like very incomprehensible. Then there's Sonic the Hedgehog, which was at Saturday AM, so it's called so the fans call it Sonic Sat AM, which was Sonic in a dystopia. Um, and then there was Sonic Underground, which is also these first three cartoons all star Jaleel White. Sonic Underground Weird. actually. Like that. Was he like the voice of Sonic at any point, or was that just the yeah. cartoon thing? Just the, he was effectively the cartoon voice of Sonic. Huh. Um, where Jaleel White plays not just Sonic, but um, Sonia and um, I think his name's Sanic or it's or um, Manic maybe. Basically, he plays Sonic and two twins of Sonic who are like musicians, and they go off in this like destroyed fantasy world to rescue their mother while also playing music. Which one had Sonic's like grandfather or, or dad or something like that? Cause I uh, don't know. Oh, cause there was, there was one that my kids were watching. I'm telling you, I've, I've had to veto a lot of shows and uh, there was one where Sonic rescued his, I think it was his dad. Cause it was like an older version of Sonic. Look exactly like Sonic, except grayer, a little bit grayer, still blue. So that was the only way you could tell, tell like them apart. Teal Sonic. Yeah, I no, think that might be Sonic Underground. More like a dusty Sonic. Dusty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's what it looked like to me. And my my kids just, I feel like a failure as a parent because they have such poor taste. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's worse on YouTube, though. I mean, YouTube's always worse. I don't know how many times I've come home and he's watching, like, a video of someone opening, like, gifts and, like, uh, weird <laughs> stuff like that. I'm like, what is this? <laughs> Um, well, my son's now into watching stuff on Amazon, the uh, the ones where people are playing Lego games. Yeah, um, that sounds the, about right. The, the playthroughs. So that's yeah. so he's he's branched out into other things that kind of make you know make me think I'm not doing very well. <laughs> so not like not like the Lego game, like not like Lego cartoons, but like Lego game let's plays. Yes. Yeah. Let's okay. plays are. I don't get them. But. Right now, it's the Star Wars, um, the Force Awakens, or the I'm sorry, the original trilogy, and then then he's moving on to the Force Awakens. I'm sure. So I got one I wanted to circle back around to real quick, if you guys don't mind. And I know I'm kind of on the record for not being a super fan of this one, but um, Scott Pilgrim to me is one I, I've never really been able to place. I know it's got a lot of video game references, but it's also got just another a lot of just references in general. Uh, honestly, it reminds me a lot of Ready Player One in some ways. Um, yeah, I, I think it's kind of like Ready Player One, though. From what I understand of Ready Player One, it's so much like laser focused on the '80s to the point of trying to be a Last Starfighter riff, mm-hmm. but specifically for an audience that was born after the Last Starfighter, which has always kind of skeeped me out because this is something that I had a problem with with things like community where it was it was about people like young people who were just disproportionately interested in things from like 20 30 years before them because that's what not because you know it's cool to like retro things which it is but because it was very, it seemed very clearly to be people kind of foisting or like authors foisting their interests on people like onto a younger generation, which is kind of what it feels like ukulele ended up doing. Right. Yeah. Like not ignoring what's happened between now and then and just eight, you know, I don't know what what to try, just basically redoing it over again without learning any of the the lessons. 
you know, and I mean, ukulele is a little different. It's like it, lo- it it's even worse. It's like <laughs> it looked at what happened in the intervening years, said, "Nah, that's all stupid. Let me go back to what we did before and do it worse." Well, I think, you know, that that's a lesson in not totally listening to the Internet, right? Sometimes the Internet can be wrong. Sometimes they tell you they want something, but they really don't, right? Yeah, well, that's one of the things, and I feel like um, we were talking about Sonic, and I kept thinking back to some very smart um, people on some of the uh, Gameological Society who were talking about this. And with ukulele, another thing is that, you know, this was a um, – that was a, a Kickstarter project, and mm-hmm. they – it, as far as I can tell, delivered every single one of their promises. The problem is that some of those promises included things like a minecart level on every world. Mm. And I mean, what, like uh, Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom type? Yeah, but like a it's not like country minecart. Okay, that. Might... But here's the thing: it's not like the minecart level. Minecart levels are inherently bad. It's just that the controls for this particular minecart minigame are just utter shit. <laughs> I can imagine them making similar. I mean, also the objective that you have to con- collect a certain amount of gems instead of just make it to the end of the level is really stupid. Yeah, it's just the the stru- the, the, me- the mechanics and the structure of those levels is what makes them terrible. There's nothing inherently wrong with it. They just fucked up everything. Like if they just made Banjo Kazooie again, I don't think people would be as angry about it as they are. It's they. It's that they fucked up making Banjo Kazooie. <laughs> That's the problem. Sorry, I, I'm sorry for that digression. Uh-huh. No, no, it's fine. Um, but I do like, think your that point there's... that they haven't that they didn't learn anything from the intervening 20 years of video games though is well taken because they really didn't. It's like there are multiple sins here. They didn't learn anything about the development of video games and then they couldn't even recreate what they did before. Yeah, it's... that's like the the double negative. <laughs> it also feels. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, it also feels especially egregious in a year that had, like you yourself, Kappa, mentioned that, you know, there's been something of a, like a cool platformer renaissance this year, like Super Mario Odyssey, Cuphead, A Hat in Time, Snake Pass, like, are all games that came out. And the, all of them, you know, took in stuff from old games and added a bunch of new stuff. And updated nostalgia, if you will. Yeah. I, you see, I don't necessarily think. Well, in some of those cases, I don't necessarily Not so much think they're... Cuphead, unless you were from the '30s. But you yeah. know, or, I mean... well, no, for the '90s because it <laughs> took a lot from like crypto, like quasi shooter, quasi platform action games like Contra. Yeah, I, Cuphead's such an interesting game to me. Like, I, I feel like I still haven't really. I, I beat it, but I still feel like I want to go back and do more with it. But it's so difficult. It's kind of one of those games that it's hard to go back and replay. Um, you know, once you kind of know the boss tells and stuff like that but i really enjoyed my time with it i i kind of hope that's one of those games that that people look at and say you know what you know there's a space for hard games with a unique aesthetic that are trying to do something neat rather than just you know because uh, I, I feel like super meat boy did one of those things right it made a really hard game but it wasn't a really cool aesthetic i never really liked it but that kind of set off the new you know let's make game platformers that are hard um so i do appreciate that part of it but Cuphead kind of refined it, and I think really hit a nice spot with it. Well, like, I'm not saying updated nostalgia in a derogatory sense. It's oh, more, yeah. It's in this particular case with Cuphead and, and um, Super Mario. It's that they had nostalgia. They're some, it's a familiar product or something feels familiar, and they've done a good job of updating it to our present time in order in regards to gameplay, as opposed to yeah. other 
that have uh, that have that aesthetic where it's something you've played before and it's been 20 years or something like that and yet they still have a shitty setup for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's what I mean. So the updated nostalgia and it could go either way, but in the case of Cuphead, it's really well done and it looks like somebody actually cared to make something that was awesome as opposed to just something thrown together here. Buy this. Oh, this yeah. is totally I'm gonna side put into it. Um, yeah, go ahead. But I think, it, in all honesty, I think more than anything else, the depiction of games in other media kind of just comes down to that part in uh, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, when Freddy Krueger kills someone <laughs> with a power glove and then says, Now I'm playing now, with power. Power, yes. <laughs> or any of the parts in like a movie based on a video game where the bad guy says, Game over! <laughs> Wait, um, but nobody ever uses the Mortal Kombat uh, finishes except for in Mortal Kombat games or you know or movies or you know that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, they had that kind of throwback or had that kind of uh, mention in some random movie. It's like you know finish him, you know, and then you know then that's reality. That would be I don't know depending on the setup, but usually that would work out pretty funny. Yeah, it is interesting though that like all of the straight video game adaptations have to feel like self conscious about making them about video games. And I sort of get that, and it's but it's kind of wondering like, is there a video game adaptation that could work, you know, without trying without trying to be about oh, that man. like it should there be? I sure. went to bat for Assassin's Creed so hard before that last movie oh. came out, and goddamn, do I regret that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I still thing. think, I mean, I still think there's the most potential for that one, but man, did they Mass miss Mass. on that one? No, maybe. Maybe. I mean, I think Mass Effect's a harder one because, you know, everybody kind of – I have a Paragon Shepard. You have uh, I can't remember, Renegade Shepard. Renegade. You're like, yeah, so, I mean, maybe there's a little bit less there. I bet you could do one in the Mass Effect universe, but I kind of feel like Valerian stole a lot of that thunder. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it would have, but Valerian was also a huge commercial flop. Yeah, exactly. But so I, I don't yeah. – I was talking with Banner about this, and I, I said, I don't know, but I, ha- I haven't seen the movie, but I just said it was hard for me to watch because the aesthetic was so clearly cribbed from Mass Effect for me. I mean, just in the shots and the, the stuff I saw, uh, oh, it was so weird cool. to me. Well, both Mass Effect and Luke Besson were drawing a lot from, like, 80s science fiction. Yeah, it's, like, even down to, in the original Mass Effect, from the score and the film grain effect is really meant to evoke... Um, the 80s 80s sci-fi look but sort of update the digital parts of it to look more like the computers of today yeah um so yeah they got the airbrush 80s sort of metal look with white everywhere but with the like the hollow monitors of more recent science fiction i'm honestly this is going to sound really weird and i don't think any of you are going to agree with me and some of you may openly balk at what i'm about to say but to me, the best video game movie, and by that I mean the best movie about a video game, but also one of the best movies about video games in general, is the fifth Resident Evil movie. Which one was that one? Uh, Retribution. Um, because what's crazy totally about on the it, roof? Uh, no, no, that is four. Um, okay. Five. I can't speak you on it. I can't speak against you because I've never seen that one. I gave up after the second one. <laughs> oh yeah, no. The Resident. I'm kind of. I became really fascinated. Um, a few months ago with Resident Evil. I mentioned this earlier, um, me and the rest of the Rabbit crew um, and the Avocado, we watch movies together. Um, uh, and, um, and we've been really interested in movies based on video games and shows based on video games. And we did Resident Evil. And one of the things we found as the series went on is that we actually kind of really started liking some of them. 
And the fifth one is easily the best because it's uh, the premise is that the main character who is an original, a character who's original to the film series called Alice, who um, is played by Mila Jovovich, the um, and also the wife of direct of the series, like main creative figure, Paul W.S. Anderson is going to this base, like the villain's base. And they keep trapping her in these larger rooms and scenarios that are setups for video games, basically. <laughs> and so while they do that, they bring back monsters from other movies and monsters from the games and characters from the games and characters from the earlier movies and everything's kind of interacting. And so it's kind of a movie about being trapped in a Resident Evil movie adaptation. So it's like it's like a video it's like a movie about a movie about video games almost. Yeah, it's really fascinating and weird. Like it's an action like it's also a pretty fun action movie in general, but it's weird it's because fun. it's like it it will it's almost like also kind of about weighing the value of different things. So like they kill off a lot of characters who are original to the movies in favor of new characters who were at a version who were characters from the game from the actual games. It, it's just really bizarre and weird, but it's also really cool. <laughs> well, I'll have to see it to to let yeah. you know. Um, of course. Um, but after the second one, I, I really got to tell you, I mean, after the a second while, one's atrocious. Oh, <laughs> it, was, it was just awful. And when when a when a movie like that gets put out, I I will give up. Okay, there's just there's no going back. I don't want to get cheated again. Oh yeah, no. I should <laughs> say um, that your tolerance for like camp or some sort of um to put it mildly technical or narrative imperfections <laughs> has to be fairly you have to be fairly tolerant of them but i do kind for think the second. sorry can you repeat that i feel that you're being very kind to the second one. Oh no no the second one's atrocious it's it's <laughs> awful um no it's a bad it is an it is an incredibly bad very unpleasant experience um I would not um, say anything else. Uh, well, when it comes to video game adaptations, I, I can't speak against that one, but uh, the one that I would say is the worst one that I've ever seen or paid money for was Annihilation, uh, Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Yeah. Um, Annihilation was not a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's that's an understatement. Well, but Yeah. Um, um, what is the best? I mean, uh, that's the best one for you. What's, what's the best one for, for uh, you, uh Murph, like what's the best like video game adaptation yeah i think i've managed to avoid every single video game movie even the one? single one even the well, one sorry oh you go yeah. yeah like i've seen i've seen movies like based uh like about video games i've seen wreck it ralph uh but i've never seen a, a movie based on an existing video game property i don't think like i haven't even seen tomb raider the new Tomb Raider looks like it's going to be at least hitting a lot of the right moments. It's got some good. I'm not going to go to bat for any video game movies anymore. <laughs> I got burned so um, bad. <laughs> not even. I'm really interested in seeing the Ace Attorney movie by uh, Takashi Miike. Which, See that that seems like it might be promising. Yeah, it exists. Like it came out. It's apparently really weird, and it presents like to try to get at that video game thing. It presents a world where all the lawyers in the movie throw evidence at each other, like they throw digital evidence at each other, like fighting game attacks. That actually sounds Ace amazing. Attorney, Ace yeah, attorney. yeah, you know, Phoenix Wright. 
I'm trying to think of the the one I would call the best, and that people wouldn't immediately go, "You're crazy." I, I, maybe the Prince of Persia one with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. I feel like that one was kind of quickly forgotten. Uh, it was, yeah, made because they they it wasn't a it wasn't a bomb. Um, it wasn't really great. Plus, Gyllenhaal with his uh, flowing locks. Yeah, uh, I don't I don't know what it got like critically wise. I, I would bet if I had a guess, it was probably like mixed on Rotten Tomatoes or something. I don't think it was, it was very probably, low. really. It was pretty low. Um, mm. uh, um, I don't, well, I, I'm just going like trying to think off the top of my head. Rot, Rotten Tomatoes or, or Metacritic or whatever you have. What, what what would you think would be like the highest rated one? The highest rated? Yeah. Ooh, probably that's... the. I'd I honestly know, assume it was Tron the first. Lexi? Like what one would like the critics like? Uh, probably man, the first man. Mortal Kombat, maybe. The yeah. first Resident Evil also, I think, got a certain degree of praise. People what? people were actually okay with Tron Legacy. I didn't like it at all I because I thought the aesthetic was just wrong. But people were, were on that. I mean, also Tron Legacy is a little bit of a weird one because it was Tron was first a movie, then a video game, and yeah. then a movie again. Uh, but the video game is great, guys. Tron 2.0, <laughs> that game is fun as hell. You're you're gonna end up seeing the movie wise. You're gonna end up seeing another Warcraft movie uh, because um, that made apparently the most money of any video game adaptation ever. It did Bafo box office in China. I yes. I, did, I didn't hate it. I, I mean, again, I, I'm not one I'm gonna go to bat for. I saw my wife who'd never touched anything Warcraft in her life before, and she thought it was pretty interesting from a newcomer. I think much like maybe like the recent Dark Tower. They try to do too much with not enough movie and just kind of ran with it, and it really didn't come forward at all. Um, if I had to pick my favorite favorite movie, a uh, favorite video game movie, probably not as well regarded. I'd probably go with Forward Unto Dawn. I don't know if you guys saw that one. No, it's the Halo one, right? Yeah, it's on um, Netflix. I think I think I saw it. I think it's, it's pretty good. I mean, it, for what it is, it, it's an intro to Halo. If you've never really you know, followed Halo, but it kind of talks about, you know, how people go from, it's, it's basically the first contact, the first time they realize that they're not alone and they attack, uh, they're attacked. It's, it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad at all. The, the, the way it was done, the, um, the look of it was pretty good. Yeah. Halo's a rich, Halo's one of my favorite universes. If if I, I could see some, they also did, had that nightfall show for a while, uh, rumors were that Spielberg was going to pick up and run with that. I, I think Nightfall ended up getting produced by um, Ridley Scott, I think. I'm not 100% about that. But that was uh, Nightfall. It's the one starring, uh, uh, what's his name, John Coulter from uh, Luke Cage. John, oh, is it John um, Coulter? Um, Mike Col- Coulter? Colton. Mike Coulter. Mike Coulter, yeah. Mike Coulter. Coulter. Yeah, it. it started Yeah, it's Ridley Scott. And starring Mike Coulter, yeah, yeah, that and that was a pretty good one. Um, uh, another pretty good one. It was. I think you could only bo- watch that if you bought Halo Five, though, and it and it's only available on like the Halo channel. So like, nobody watched it. It's just weird to me. You you make a Ridley Scott produce. Uh, you know, right around the time Mike Coulter was becoming a big thing, but the only way to watch it is through uh that weird Halo channel. I guess you can probably buy it, but uh. That was that one wasn't bad either, but Halo, Halo's done okay for me in terms of uh, movies. Um, Go ahead. Sorry, I was gonna say is um, a few minutes ago, uh, 
listeners may have heard uh, some typing. Uh, that was me um, because while we were talking, I wanted to look up just a list of movies based on video games. And this is a somewhat lamentable one. Um, I mean, honestly, one of the better ones here is the much maligned, also, but yet very entertaining Street Fighter movie with Jean-Claude Van Damme and Raul Julia. <laughs> which I still like because, honestly, you know what? It's a really fun performance by Raul Julia in the movie. In, in the movie, is smart enough to lean on him more than anyone else. He's the only one who really got what they were going for, no, honestly. I think, in that, I think Van Damme did too. Like, yeah. I think he knew so it was nominated actor, and he, I mean, he knew where he was standing. He, he was dressed, clad in complete leather, wearing this ridiculous out. I mean, just a ridiculous outfit for a character. Well, and he knew close he, to the end of his life. Yeah, and he just dove in. He was like, you know what? Fuck it. Yeah. I mean, he makes that movie and I honestly think it's an entertaining film I like to watch because and he is, of course, most of it. But that doesn't really mean it's bad when he's in like 60 percent of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, uh, I remember when there's that also out and that was. Oh, wow. Yeah. Even then, the critics were savage. <laughs> yeah. Um, the I'm also looking at uh, the Doom movie starring Carl Urban and Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Yeah, I mean, oh. a Doom movie. It was yeah, awful. They had a fine. sequence that was all first person. Like I think yeah. people like ended up puking in the theater. It was. <laughs> oh, it's like Hardcore Henry yeah. was all in first person. That's another one, right? That was a video game ish movie um, starring yeah. Charlto Cop. That I want to say. Is it anywhere? I haven't. I don't, I don't know where. I haven't had a chance to see it. I didn't see it in the theater. Didn't want to, but um, I've been looking for it to be on some you know hbo go or on uh netflix or prime it's not on any of those it's like it just disappeared bye uh, yeah um incidentally um the doom movie um some fun facts it was directed by um andre Barka- um barkowiak who is the guy who did exit wounds starring dmx and steven seagal <laughs> romeo must die starring jet lee hey that wasn't bad and, yeah. and cradle to the grave um, um, real starring- with Aaliyah. Like before she died, yeah, that was yeah. actually a decent film. I mean, um, it was pretty, pretty decent. Definitely had a, a motif you like to work in, huh? What about <laughs> uh, what about documentaries though, like King of Kong or any of those other ones? You guys watch any of those? Yes, King of Kong, fist, Fistful of Dollars. That's yeah. Quarters, I'm sorry, that was uh, that was great. I didn't know I didn't know what to expect from that. And I started watching it, and the guy with the mullet, the the villain, if you will, the yeah. one with the record. <laughs> so the hot sauce. That was <laughs> that was just it was yeah. Rude. It was riveting, and it was just about Kong. It just yeah, incredible. I believe you mean um, hot sauce and restaurant entrepreneur Billy Mitchell. <laughs> <laughs> you could have put any title under that guy, and I would have believed it. You could have put he sold airplanes to, to to you know homeless children. I'd be like, yeah, it sounds like that's what he does. Like he just has a face for scamming. It's I, can't, I every time I, I think of that guy. All I can think is mullet and how serious he was about his record. Oh, man. Take it down a few notches there. I got to imagine some of that's editing. I mean, I don't think anybody can be 100% like that. But uh, I don't know. know. If anyone seems like they can be like Billy Mitchell 100% of the time. (laughs) Um, You never turn that off. It's possible. (laughs) Um, How was the indie game, the movie? Uh, I've actually not seen it. Which one? boring. The one uh, it's on Steam. Uh, I I have a very reflexive. 
I don't want to say hate's too strong, but Phil Fish and Jonathan Blow both just strike me as just extremely pretentious. And uh, I don't know, I, I just very eye rolling uh, on every time those two were on screen. Um, you know, especially since uh, afterwards, you know, shortly afterwards, Phil Fish basically, you know, took his ball and went home um, after people were mean to him and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, and I don't think Fez was as good as people, you know, kind of went crazy with. Um, but Jonathan Blow, I think he's a little more low key about it. I didn't mind him as much, but just between the two of them, I just I couldn't follow a whole movie by them too. What was the movie exactly? It's called um, Indie Game, the movie. Um, yeah, it's a documentary about I think the making of Braid and Fez. I want to say and Super Meat Boy is, Super uh, Meat is Boy. the third one. Yeah, and, okay. and the, that's Ed McMillan, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, I don't know. I don't know what you guys think about them, but uh, it's definitely more about kind of more about their personalities and how like these things are labors of love and, you know, stuff like that. Um, the Super Meat Boy guys are a little bit more kind of upbeat and, you know, talking about like how, how things got good for them and everything. But Bill Fish is still kind of just the moody guy that I don't know. You got you got I, I I like to you have an opinion about him. Yeah, Fez, I mean, I'm sure he makes great video games, but sometimes you know, making great video games doesn't make for the best personality for uh, being a documentary subject. Yeah, it made, it made me wonder why he wanted to do it, to be honest with you. Um, it, you know, it, it just didn't seem like his kind of thing to, to be inside a movie like that. Um, I mean, remember, Fez had a hugely long development cycle. Um I want to say it was like seven or eight years or something like that, maybe shorter, but it was a, it wasn't, it was a long time coming. Um, so yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. He was probably so lost in it at the time that maybe they had an agreement to do the movie before then. Um, but yeah, you know, since then he's kind of quit the industry and a bunch of other stuff. Seven or eight years in development, just, just production. I think it started out as like a labor of love type thing. And then he kind of shifted it. Uh, he shifted it from um, two or three different types of games. I I don't think it always was going to be a platform game. I think it, it was, was going to be something else. It was a platformer like action RPG with enemies and like leveling up and health. And eventually he cut all that out because the part that he realized was the most interesting and the most like valuable was just the um perspective switching well the, the and, hard, so, and that's around the time that he used to work with another guy and the movie kind of centers around the legal dispute where the guy who kind of did all the art and assets and everything else for the game basically was like in this legal dispute for the game because he wanted to really do it all himself um you know, he, and, and then so like there's kind of this legal dispute of who owns what. If, you know, some guy did all this stuff, but you decide to switch the direction of the game. Um, that That's the real big kind of like tense moment in the indie game, the movie. Um, but uh, there's also a real like a scene. I'm sure I don't know if you guys heard about it. If you thought anything about the movie at all, there's a scene where he like basically says that. Well, he doesn't really say he gets really emotionally invested. But later on, um and in the movie, I think he does say this. I, I haven't seen it in a while, but he basically says if the game doesn't release, like because of um, the, the lawsuit, and they they portray the other guy on the other end of the lawsuit really negatively. So don't don't you know? But Phil Fish says he's he's going to kill himself if the game doesn't release, and everybody's like, oh my god, like you know, and like he's pretty serious about it. Um, <laughs> so like a lot of people thought that was just kind of a like a thing that was surprising for somebody to say in a movie. Um, 
you know, and, and some people kind of call them out as being, you know, kind of influencing the lawsuit and other things. But yeah, that was a, that was a weird part of the movie. I mean, I That's like a total change, a complete total change. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Based on everything else that had happened before that. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, question anyone's like concerns about their own mental health. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not doing that either. I, I'm oh, just yeah. saying that, like that—that that was in the movie. The way that was kind of portrayed was at, against this backdrop of a lawsuit where the guy was basically, you know, trying to not make the game not come out because he was asserting his legal right to it at the same time. And they—they they don't show his side at all, you know. And like I said, he's kind of like just portrayed as like this bad guy in the background, and it's just kind of surprising, um, you know, that the the movie kind of just took one side with it and ran with it, and then kind of included that scene. Um, you know, because it does kind of feel like you're, you're saying one of these guys is a bad guy when, you know, depending on your view of it, both of them might have a little bit of a claim to the game itself. Yeah. Um, okay. I know we're getting close to kind of the end. I was just thinking of some other, uh, cause we talked about Uva Bull last time. Oh, I'm <laughs> so kidding. I don't know. We're talking about him again. <laughs> you really yeah. need to talk about Uva Bull again. Um, I was actually thinking that one of the other, I feel like a lot of, video game adaptation. I mean, I don't know. Part of it's that, you know, the... Like, I don't want to say that there no one who makes good films is interested in them, because I don't think that's really fair. Uh, I'm not really sure what exactly it is. Um, maybe it's because of the fact that most video games don't really lend themselves to conventional 90-minute storytelling, but then again, a lot of serials and comics and books don't, and those well, work out. I mean, uh, the Assassin's Creed movie had a lot of you know, star power and, and skill behind it. I mean, it, it wasn't exactly, I don't think they got maybe a, a good director for it, but I mean, star power wise and acting wise, they had a, a pretty stacked crew. Um, and, and that movie just went nowhere, you know? Um, and, and I know Ubi very famously kind of exerted more control over it because they wanted it to be better than most video game movies. But man, I mean, and, and like I said, on, on, on our, last movie podcast or movie related game podcast i think that the assassin's creed world is is ripe for a, a movie i mean it's just an interesting world to me and you you have the whole globe at any period of time at your disposal um you i know, think it really pertains or it's to me the more interesting story would be the one on the ship um on the uh uh black flag. black flag thank you uh, yeah that one, that one to me looks like the kind of thing that you would definitely make into a movie it just has a whole cinematic look to it um and the story seemed more interesting to me than than the original i understand you have probably have to start at the beginning so that i guess your audience yeah i don't think you need to i think honestly as far as i could understand the assassin's creed movie basically was just like it's set in the assassin's creed universe but it's a different story yeah it's not the story i mean they're going after the apple and they're taking on the templars but it's not necessarily um, it's not Altair. it's not Altair, yeah and it's not it's not Ezio. so i mean it's it's there in the universe but yeah i mean they had some freedom to kind of do with it they introduced the concept of the animus and the assassins and the and the templars and, and you know they got the baseline in there and i mean you've got Bassbender and uh marion Cotillard. Cotillard. yeah i mean you got you got names in that movie but it just kind of the movie just kind of like it felt bored with itself it, it didn't have any kind of you know humor or lightness it was very much like that kind of grim dark uh moody nolan batman feel to it um which i think it, didn't play well for assassin's Creed, which is kind of goofy if you think about it you know i mean 
the Nolan was also not that like gritty or grim. Like his like it's as much as he sort of associated with that style. Like he's still got a, he's still a Batman who is probably the most mentally sound we've seen in a movie since Batman sixty six. He's like it's it's a movie that has a lot. Those are movies that have a lot of time. I, I'm sorry, that's just really unimportant yeah no but i but I, yeah. not necessarily yeah, I, nolan totally but that's the feel i got walking away was like it was trying to take a very serious look at kind of what in 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 reality is just a little bit silly right like batman's a little bit silly too right yeah. i mean if you get down to it and so is assassin's creed you're living your ancestors memory through this machine and you know it, it's you get a to have sex creepy. with your ancestor and yeah. or, <laughs> exactly. and then you play as like you're the fetal version of yourself <laughs> so there, there's some stuff yeah, in there like staring to the skin right yeah but but i i think they could have you know at least kind of made it a little bit lighter uh, it wasn't horrible but man that that's the last time i'll ever i'll ever say yeah this is our chance at a good video game movie because man that one let me down a lot I, I i feel like saying it like that maybe the not the best way to go about it because i don't think we're gonna find like a magic example of this one thing that that switches the paradigm. What we're going to have are movie adaptations that are better and better. And well, but I mean, Marvel did. I, I mean, comic movies I mean, they, were a joke until Iron Man, right? I mean, no, no, they weren't because there was also Blade. The X Men movies were popular, like well, popular, yeah. But I don't, I don't think anybody was like getting. You know, I don't think my mom would have went and saw Blade. You know, well, I mean, my mom people is, saw me about X Men. Yeah, true. Well, but a lot of people saw X Men, and yeah, I, I mean, but don't, but I don't, don't think, think you so, can. I don't think you can uh, discount the importance of uh, the Raimi Spider-Man films and the X-Men trilogy in uh, convincing people that comic book movies were viable. And also uh, commercial blockbusters, but, but video games but it's really aren't like, even there yet. They're not even at like the X-Men <laughs> Spider-Man stage yet. It's but, like, oh God, a video game movie is going to be awful. Like, there, There's I, no optimism. It's also worth noting that like we've had uh, book adaptations in films forever. And certainly in comic adaptations, like we talked about the Raimi Spider-Mans, and those were big movies, as was as was um, the Burton Batman movie, as was the Superman movies. Those were huge. And, like, when the Superman movies came out, people were like, this is – you know how people talk about how, like, the Citizen Kane of video games or whatever, how, yeah. like, this is – like, the Superman movie came out, and it was like – people were like, this is this glorious new age. And there were actually people who were talking about how we were going to see all of these great hype – class comic book adaptations and they never happened mm. um over time we got more of them and we are continuing to get more of them and i think with video games it's just more of a matter about not finding that perfect one and more about there just being more good movies and more movies that are interested in exploring either the worlds of specific video games or probably more importantly the mechanics of games so I think Retribution does that. I think Inception does that. And I think that when we start to get more good video game movies, because I think there are a couple of good video game movies, it'll be through that direction. So what you're saying is that the video game video game adaptations need to find their Spider-Man 2 as opposed to their Dark Knight, you know, where it needs to be Oscar-worthy, just just viable enough to where audiences, audiences don't look at it and say, eh, it's a video game, as opposed to, you know, watching the comic book movies from before beyond say the Burton Batmans where they would watch comic book movies and say, well, 
is like the comic book, you know, it, it, not with disdain, but it's like, eh, it's, it is what it is, as opposed to Spider-Man 2, where it came along and it was like, wow, you know, you could have feeling and, and high drama and actually really great acting with a, essentially a, a popcorn flick. Well, then, uh, uh, yeah. Because, it, it, everybody's looking for that right now. But when Dark Knight comes around, the Dark Knight comes around and you have a movie that that's not only based on a comic book, but is actually so well acted that it's Oscar worthy. So we don't need to. So video games don't need to find that. They need to find the Spider-Man two, of, and then build from there. Yeah, that 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 would be my thing. I think you need to kind of have it accepted and then bring it into you know high art levels yeah. because right now it's it's not it's, even it's, it's not there. Yeah, and I, I mean I think comic books is a good example, but also if you think about some of the other like genres of movies now that people get into, it, it takes a while just for people to even accept that some of these movies are. It used to be you know dramas were the only things that people even considered for for you know awards and stuff, but I think you're seeing a lot more comedies and, and things like that start to get talked about it's, in consideration. It's, I, it's actually kind of gone up and down. Um, like in the '50s, you had a lot of comedies that were actually pop given those consideration i think a lot of it isn't just that there's a bias against them even if there kind of is it's just that there's a lot i think in general like there's not a lot of genuinely like uh, i i think that there's some but there's not as many comedies that are maybe emblematic of the best that films of that year have to offer like i think something like what we do in the shadows would be a great like uh, would would have been a great like oscar contender me too. Yeah. I, I love that movie. It was not only funny, but it was actually kind of touching in certain parts. Um, but it wasn't really looked at because it was just that vampire comedy, you know, sideshow. Oh, yeah. No. But, and I think that's where you see the bias. But in general, like, I'm thinking of the big comedy films that have been recent tonight. Like, do I think Bay the Baywatch movie should be up for consideration? <laughs> Well, um, I mean, even even past that, like I might argue that, <laughs> but, but like there's movies that can transcend kind of what they were going to be like. Did you guys expect the 21 Jump Street movies to be awesome? You know, no. like I, and then they okay. were. And I, I think there's a chance that video game movies could do that. It's just they, they've got to make that first couple steps. And I don't know how, but I, I think but honestly, I hope they figure it out. They have to find their Sam Raimi. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Well, <laughs> I mean, I've argued, you know, that they've already had some of some genuinely good ones. Uh, I think a lot of it would just be like people who are willing to, I don't know, maybe try to step away from the obvious tropes and maybe kind of lean into exploring the concept of gaming, and, like exploring worlds. But I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah, and I, that's what. Like, I think that's where, like, say, Retribution has a template in the way that, like the Raimi Spider-Mans or the Salkin Supermans or the Burton Batman laid a template. Well, I'm hoping that Duncan Jones can do that with the next Warcraft movie, honestly. He's the type of director who gets it. I, I really think that. And he is a good director. I, I think that he can take Warcraft and put it in a direction that... I don't know. I think actually on Twitter he released what his plans are or would have been for the sequel. I don't know if it's been announced yet. I'm assuming it is because, like we talked about China, but he's the kind of guy, I think, like the Sam Raimi... Um, who who gets what it's about, gets what the story is, and maybe if they relax their, you know, the studio standards for what they want the movie to be, he can kind of do something interesting in that world. Movie executives yeah, like, like they like to ruin movies. They just do. They just like to ruin them. They think. Well, the, I think the next logical step would be the Arthur story, right? Which I mean is kind of a very classical, 
you know, tale of a, of a fall from grace. You know, you got a power struggle and, and lots of stuff in there. I, I think if he was to take that sword and run with it, there'd be, there'd be a room to, to tell a cool story. But who knows what, you know, with that kind of money, what the studio is going to expect from him. I guarantee it has a couple characters that are Chinese in it, though, no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, I think the approach they need to take is, is something similar to what Wolfman mentioned, which is... Um, you need to, if you want to make a video game adaptation, like obviously you can't, um, like obviously you can't recreate the feeling of playing a video game exactly, but you sort of need to take some of that, uh, some of that spirit. So in a, in a video game that's focused on exploration, you need to, to imbue the, the film with that spirit of exploration. And I think like right now, what people are, what directors are doing is just sort of lifting the plot details and then remixing them. And making like a generic semi-blockbuster. Or a giant. Uh, yeah, what they really need to do is do something more like you could make a movie that's like Wreck It Ralph, but with an existing property. Yeah, and, and that's and that that's what I'm hoping that that Duncan Jones or, or one not necessarily has to be him, but one of those types of, of directors can do. They can say, okay, well, here's the spirit of this game, and I'm going to make a movie on it that's not necessarily you know, the exact plot points in the exact order, but, you know, gets the spirit of it correct. I think it's probably a little late for it, but imagine if they could make a GTA Vice City movie. My, uh, oh, man. My, big hero. Question, my big question about a GTA movie would be, like, I almost feel like the interactive elements are the, the defining part. Like, like, I'm not sure would you, because, like, the whole thing and what the... In a lot of ways, I think what makes GTA work is that all of the crazy stuff is almost, like, to the side where it's not... Like, when you play a GTA game, it's really rare that... Like, if you just follow the story, it's really rare that you do all the crazy things you can do in the game. That's just, you know, it's not blocked off, so there's a sense... You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like I'm not sure... The crazy isn't... Most of the crazy isn't concentrated in the main storyline. I mean, San Andreas aside, because that just goes wacky. And <laughs> it comes back to, I mean, then they bring it, I mean, I'm spoiling a very old game now, but then they sort of make a meta commentary on it. Like you went off and did all this crazy shit and you forgot about your roots and they bring it all back full circle. Uh, but for the most part, GTA games, the, the main plot remains grounded in a relative sense. The main plot really isn't, isn't about, you know, going around running over old ladies. Yeah, it's about what's really a, oftentimes a generic, if sometimes really well told, crime story. Yeah, if I was going to do it, I would kind of focus on like the heist part of GTA, the newest one. You know, kind of like do kind of yeah. like a Michael Mann type feel with it, where you know you got a lot of interesting characters who meet up in various ways and have to you know pull a heist off, and you know maybe right. not make it about some some make it just about being rich not uh action drama is it an action drama or is it going to be uh, a comedy action type comedy thing? action you got to go that way with gta like, uh, what's that director from uh, kiss kiss bang bang um, um black. shane black like if he if he made if he was the one that was given the reins on a gta movie i would see that being yeah like, yeah i think that's really the best way like a, you're a gonna guy richie return to form type movie yeah i mean that in that so here's this character, here's the story, 
Guy Ritchie go with it. And yeah. you probably end up getting a, a really kind of exciting, maybe not necessarily makes a whole lot of sense type movie, <laughs> but it would be something <laughs> I mean, watching. Yeah, you could argue that like Snatch is almost like a GTA yes. kind of film, especially like since GTA got its, like the first GTA set in London. So. Yeah, um, no, I can I can see that because you know before G- get here. About GTA Two was in London, and GTA One had Vice City, San Andreas, and Liberty City. Other way around, GTA One oh. is in is in London. Okay, cool. GTA Two oh. is in the states. Probably the one I'd be interested in doing is an animated Mario movie or something, but just because I'm kind of interested in because I feel like it's something where it seems really impossible. And I'm more interested in trying something that I think would be hard to adapt instead of something that I think would be easier to adapt, like Assassin's Creed. I think with a with a Mario cartoon, I think you just have to sort of lean into the silliness of it. But, oh yeah, but not like I don't think you need to go meta like Sonic Boom. I think that would be okay. really. I don't think irritating. Mario works with meta. I think Mario works with earnestness. Yeah, like the one exception being like Mario plus Rabbids, which has a lot of meta in it. But that's, but, but that's also from the rabbit stuff, too. Yeah. Um, um, I'm just trying to imagine what Mario is going to sound like. I mean, uh, they just get <laughs> Charles Martinet. I don't know. Yeah, it's just an Italian stereotype. Yeah, that's, that's, that's to be. kind of, you know, that might be problematic. I mean, I think that honestly, like if watching a lot of, I've been watching a lot of cartoons recently, and I honestly think that having characters who don't talk as much is often for the better. And I think that works fine with Mario because just make it like Wally. No, like not Wally. like that. Quite, but that was <laughs> more like a weirdly lighthearted Samurai Jack where okay. like Mario just doesn't talk. Almost. Luigi does all the talking. Luigi does all the talking. Yeah. Make it like a JRPG where the protagonist just doesn't talk. <laughs> oh. Yeah, like give him like I a actually, little sprite that flies around his shoulder and that tells all the jokes. <laughs> I actually think, in all honesty, if they ever do adapt Zelda, I don't want Link to talk. I actually would love to see them try a to have a character emote without actually using like coherent specific dialogue. Like you don't you don't want excuse me, princess, to come. I, back. No, I don't want like the weird sub cheers dot joking dialogue in the Legend of Zelda cartoon. You know, I was I was thinking uh, you um, Kappa had mentioned the property earlier, but I was thinking about game movies or properties that already exist that aren't games at all. Um, like for example, the Dark Tower is what you brought up earlier. Mm-hmm. I was thinking that would make for an awesome game. To me, I mean, if they developed yeah. it, yeah, because of all the different levels, all the maybe not necessarily follow the exact same storyline, but just you know, change it, alter it for the game. But that would just with all the levels, all the different areas you can go to, this open world type thing. Um, it just seems like that would be an awesome video game to play. I'm, yeah, I'm, I, I, I think that you know, I think we were we we talked about it, uh, I think once before, but man, it is hard to make a license game these days that people aren't automatically going to reject right out the bat. I mean, with a few exceptions like butcher Bay and, you know, a couple other ones, license games, almost always just well, maybe Lego being the exception. I, I don't know I if think... I got excited for a, like a, like a license game in a long time. I don't know. I mean, I think because of the fact like in the, I think in the fifth and sixth generation, it worked a lot more easily. But once we started getting to the seventh, and especially past the seventh, like licensed game adaptations didn't work because I think it's harder for shovelware to really get as much of a foothold. 
now that you have increasingly digital distribution and a lot of non-game stuff use game stores have kind of like closed down. So I well, think, and you've got a lot of like the real big licenses like Star Wars tied up in one you know place company. Yeah, yeah. It, yes. it's not like it yeah, used to be those. where yeah you could put out that weird Star Star Wars Connect game or whatever. It, you're you know you put Star Wars on it's got to run through EA and EA is going to figure out how to get the most money out of that thing they can. So I don't think like adaptations are necessarily something I um th- I assume are just going to turn out bad. A lot of times I'm not as interested in them just because I. Just, I think it's just because I like to hear about a game before when it comes out. Usually, more than anything else, I'd love a Dark Tower game. Though, back to what you're talking, I would oh, love yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, like I said, Matrix. I mean, any type of those those movies where even like Inception movies that feel like they could be video games are always exciting to me. But I mean, it's you got to have the right studio doing the right thing with it. But man, yeah, Dark Tower would be really cool. Thinking you know about what? like as like a Fallout style RPG or something. You know yeah. what I'm going to go say, and this is going to be really crazy and ambitious, and it's no studio could reasonably do it. Um, a, a, a the Wire adaptation. Oh man! <laughs> like, th- like basically something like L.A. Noir, but where you can actually genuinely screw up and fail missions, or like, when, yeah, like missions kind of lead into each other, and so you basically create a story where you go through these different investigations over time and how you solve them actually influences what happens in the later season. So if you try to like, so definitely like a telltale chapter game style. a bit, but it would have to have a lot more. Um, it would have to have more branching paths or at least more distinguishing during the paths, because like if say, for instance, if you tried to be like use kind of like, acted like an abusive cop to try to get results maybe then that you get like harangued by the DEA or the criminals start to adapt to not have to deal with that. So you have to find new methods. What Bunny Bunny Colvin does. So you do the opposite as opposed to being the, you know, the bad kind of cop or trying to, you know, be the more violent uh, pushy cop trying to actually introduce something more positive into the system like Bunny in if I'm yeah. giving away, we're spoiling season three. I'm sorry. Um, but, uh, the whole hamster damn thing. Um, yeah. Obviously, we'll have some drawbacks as well. And yeah, that and of course the problem with that is that you'd have to make, for one thing, probably a sandbox, which is not cool because because this wouldn't be a game that would use sandbox as well. So, but you'd still have to have a large, massive cast of characters and situations, and then. Like it's just would be financially exorbitant to a degree. The hard thing about it too is for whatever reason, I don't agree with it, just true. Video games are held to a weirder standard when it comes to adult things than movies. Like if you ever try to make Breaking Bad the game, people would lose their mind. Do you know what I mean? Like if you were like making meth to make money. Totally agree. Yeah. So I mean I – I always kind of think about that. Like like if you try to make a wire the uh, game and you made it like – profitable to be a drug dealer and made it look cool and you know killing people actually helped you in the game people would lose their minds just because that's well, for, yeah. for, it's viewed as a kid's thing still in some ways you I know mean, i mean sometimes but i'm not entirely as sure about that i mean i think in general yeah people do i see i think they see it more as juvenile than for kids by this point mm-hmm. because yeah. so like the vast majority of games are very clearly marketed to and meant for adult audiences or at least chronologically adult audiences yeah yeah um, I, I, could, I, I could see that i just i would just would be worried about any kind of like adaptation like that 
would just be, I mean, if you didn't play it for, you know, indie cred, I don't think any, like you said, any major studio would take that chance. Cause man, I think, I mean, I, I think there's, this is, this is a little bit hard to explain. I might stumble when I'm trying to, when I'm trying to get at, I, I understand why people are, are sensitive about gaming's ability to represent serious and, and controversial issues because they fucked up in the past. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but there's no reason that to keep being said. To... Yeah. There's that being no said, there's there's almost this this weird reactionary mindset amongst some members of the gaming, what's called community. the gaming intelligentsia, who are who believe that there's something. Or I don't know if they they they, they truly believe this, but they they act as if any attempt to do so or to to depict these difficult issues is doomed to failure and, and therefore shouldn't be attempted in the first place. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. That's the thing though, is like, and I know you and I and probably Kappa and pumpkin pie like would disagree with this because like, I was thinking about this earlier. The, um, we, you know, I mentioned Ace Attorney before and if, you know, cause Ace Attorney has this weird cultural thing where it's a Japanese game and it takes place in Japan and the English version, it takes place in LA to get it well no no it, it also makes sense because the um ace attorney is also like a japanese adaptation of stuff like colombo and perry mason so it's all okay. kind of fits um but in one thing that doesn't really cross over and by necessity is the fact that the ace attorney games are kind of a satire and criticism of the actual japanese legal system because in japan um the court system often puts more of the burden of proof on the innocent and they structure a system where like it's actually the prosecutors who have the most uh, kind of commercial and political power. So Phoenix is a defense attorney and defending like innocent clients in a world where um, the, where, where, um, uh, yeah. Do you know, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. So it, it, yeah, it, it is very much this, um, like Ace Attorney is very much this, this sort of, uh, I don't want to say critique, but it's a depiction of the very specific um, attitudes and, and characteristics of the Japanese legal system. It's also something that was uh, a big subject of criticism in, in Persona 5, right? That they, um, that's a story about somebody who's unjustly treated by a legal system that's geared towards, um, towards prosecuting the accused. So it's, it's, it's something that doesn't translate as well over to, uh, say, the American legal system. I don't think they would actually, they might go above them. I mean, not to well, yeah. no, totally say about American audiences, we're not that smart. We're just not. I mean, I don't think a lot of audiences are that smart, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's cultural differences make it, make it sometimes a little difficult to uh, adapt these things across countries. Um, so I think that's all the time we have for this podcast. Um, thank you guys for, for being on it and chat with us about depicting video games and other media, how we'd adapt video games to movies. And of course, talking about our favorite topic ever, Sonic the Hedgehog. And his enduring <laughs> terribleness. Yeah. So, um, anything else you guys like to add before we call this to a close? Nah, I had a great time, man. Yeah, this is a good one. So thank you guys for being here, and we'll see you next time, listeners. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.